to Bickering Peaks with your hosts, Aiden and Lindsay. So, we are here with Harvey from the internet. Yes. <laughs> to talk about uh, season two, episode two of Twin Peaks. And. What's it called? Coma. 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 Okay. All right. Does it all? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Hi, Harvey. How are you tonight? I'm all right. How are you doing? We're doing We're just doing just good. fine, yeah. just yeah. fine. Good. Excited to talk about this episode. So yeah. Um, before we get started, yeah. we wanted to just briefly have you introduce yourself and talk about how you got into Twin Peaks. What was your first introduction to this magical, fantastical world that we're dabbling in tonight? Well, I watched Twin Peaks the first time in the year of our Lord, nineteen hundred and ninety-five, <laughs> when. Uh, Bravo was showing reruns of the uh, episodes gotcha. to capitalize on David Duchovny's new fame with the X-Files, mm-hmm. and he was actually the reason I started watching it. Really? I read, yeah. Um, I read in a New York Times article that he was in it. I didn't know what role he played. Um, this was long before Internet Movie Database, so I really <laughs> couldn't look him up or anything. But... Um, I thought that any I, w- I would watch anything that he was in at that point, and I did watch anything that he was in, and a lot of it was terrible, but it <laughs> was great. Um, and I and I started to like the series on its own merits. Um, it, uh, it 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 had a lot in common with the X Files, which I just enjoyed as a piece of media, um, not just because of David Duchovny. I I enjoyed the supernatural aspect. Um, mm-hmm. I like the world building. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the, the stylistic flourishes. Um, it was really my introduction to David Lynch as a filmmaker and a storyteller. Okay. So it was um, it, it was it was an enjoyable viewing experience for me, even at that age. Okay. I rewatched it a couple of times when I was in my late twenties and early thirties, mm-hmm. and I'm doing my most recent rewatch now. Very cool. Yeah. So you're the first person that I've met who actually watched it on Bravo. I don't know anybody who they either watched it originally or have watched it since. But, um, yeah. but the Bravo airings are interesting to me, and I and I hadn't clued in that of course it would be because of David Duchovny's fame and everything. Like that makes total sense, right? Yeah. Well, so and Colin McLaughlin cool. and Flintstones, obviously. Well, yeah, the Flintstones yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah. How could you forget about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, that's excellent. So you've been a fan for quite a while. Yeah. Um, yes, do, you, do you have um, a favorite episode or, well, I know you have a favorite character. Hank is not my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I wasn't talking about Hank. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, well, I kind of, I gave myself up there. Um, <laughs> gave myself away there. Oh, how embarrassing. Um, who, who, well, then, who's my favorite character? Well, isn't it Albert? Yes, yes. Yeah, okay. It is Albert. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I was going to see if I was going to if I was going to embarrass myself even more. No. <laughs> uh, no, it is Albert. Um, yeah. I have a very strange relationship with Albert, this fictional man who doesn't exist, <laughs> because um, on, uh, in in a very real way, I I dislike him. I have known people similar to him, mm-hmm. and. They always try to couch their um, their so-called honesty and in, in 
in very noble terms, but really they're just dicks. Yeah, yeah. And they and they want to try to intellectualize it, but you really can't intellectualize mistreating people. Right. But Albert is a work of fiction, and as a work of fiction, he's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, Albert's a dick, but there's more to it than that. And I think that with him, even though there are so many juxtapositions and seeming contradictions, all of it is completely true. Okay. So he is this terrible personality. He is cruel. He's vicious. He's very, very cynical. He doesn't think very highly of anyone, really. But at the same time, he's capable of um, uh, great store, of having great stores of, of uh, compassion and, and transpersonal love, and I think that that is that he really does do everything he does out of love. It's a very strange love yeah. that um, I don't think most people can understand. I don't really understand mm-hmm. it in anything more than an academic sense. Right. But he's not he's not putting you on. He's not um, he's not trying to cover up his own behavior because I don't think he's even capable of that. Uh, okay. I, I, it's not that he can't lie. It's that it seems like any kind of pretense is, is would be repugnant to him. Mm. So if he if he thinks it, if he feels it, especially if he feels it, he has to say it. Yeah. Even though we see that it's almost physically painful for him in, right. in this episode, in fact, yes. in the very first scene, to express any sort of real feeling. Yeah. So he's he's interesting to me because um that you have to you have to do a lot of work without Albert. And mm. it's not because you know, the writing is lacking and the performance is lacking because both his writing and Miguel Fede's performance are excellent. Yeah. It's because there's so much going on that you have to sort of work to reconcile it within yourself and to question your your perceptions as a viewer. Yeah. That's a great introduction to Albert. We should have yeah. had you on the very first time <laughs> we introduced him because that's brilliant. Yeah, it sums him up pretty oh, thank well. You. Yeah, no, definitely. And you're right. Like we I've we see him right away. Him, I think a lot about him. Yeah, <laughs> clearly you've put a lot of thought into him, which is great because yeah. he really is one of the best one of the best characters that is on the show. I think anyway. Yeah. He's so enjoyable to watch, and you're right. It his writing is great, and the actor pulls it off beautifully. Yeah, he's yeah. he's so fantastic, and um, yeah, very good. yeah. So yeah. definitely, and and yeah, you're right. Like we see him in like the very first scene. In uh, in this episode, and it's one of my favorite scenes with him. Mm-hmm. And any scene he's in is going to be yeah, a great, great scene. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's excellent. Thank you so much for the for the breakdown. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, Thank you for having me on. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> yes. We're so glad to have your insight into this episode. We know that this is yeah. one of your one of your uh, one of the early favorites for season two for you. Correct? Yes, I do enjoy this episode a lot. I think that is very solid in terms of um, its narrative, and we get a little bit of everything. Mm. It's, it's In some episodes, some of the characters are given short trips, yeah. or they have what what could be considered novelty storylines, sure. which kind of um, comes to the fore. Yeah. Uh, and that happens a lot in season two. The one that, that irritates me the most is probably the um, Lana budding Milford storyline <laughs> coming up soon, and I'm I'm putting on my rubber gloves for that one already. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Well deserved. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so do you want to 
take us back to the start? Yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. just quickly um, just go over. So this was written by Harley Payton and directed by David Lynch. So that might go a long way into explaining Harvey what you were saying about the um, the writing and and how this got a little bit of everything. It's still. I really like all those episodes that, that David Lynch is directly involved with. And Harley Payton is one of the ones who takes over the mantle of writer through season two. So he's a regular throughout the rest of this season. And he wrote a few episodes in season one as well. So there's some kind of continuity there, I think, which is really great. Um, yeah. Which probably explains a little bit of that, mm-hmm. I would imagine. Um, this episode aired on October 6, 1990. And takes place the day after Cooper was hospitalized after his shooting. So March 4th, 1989-ish. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, Harvey, um, did you watch this with the Log Lady intros? When when they were on Bravo, certainly you must have seen the, the Log Lady intros, but have you been watching the Log Lady intros um, during your current rewatch now? or? No, I saw them originally when I watched them on Bravo. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm now watching it on um, on Hulu or on Amazon, and they don't, unfortunately, uh, have the Log Lady intros. Okay. Yeah, I don't know yeah. what possessed us to start watching them. They're they're on. We're watching them on the the Blu-ray yeah. uh, box set, which is um, there. Yeah. So um, we'll just do a really brief rundown of what the Log Lady intro says here. It's it's. Um, well, Aiden, do you wanna? Uh, sure. So she has three paragraphs here we have it up up on the screen so that's easy for us uh so she talks about um kind of the finding oneself Mm -hmm. in in the middle middle ground kind of thing um it's i don't know that doesn't that section doesn't mean much to me but then she moves into uh talking about how there's the universe and the body are kind of paralleled um the stars and moons and planets remind us of protons neutrons and electrons and then talking about uh does the what goes on outside us in the larger universe affect who we are and what what happens inside of us? She says, "Yes, I think it does." <laughs> uh, and then, then she goes into cream corn. What, where does cream corn figure into the workings of the universe? And what really is cream corn? Is it a symbol for something else? And yeah. Course, so a little on the nose there, yeah, but well, yeah. What do you expect? <laughs> but it, but yeah, that's that's the first time you hear about cream corn. It too, is, and so. this is the first episode where you see cream corn yes, and what it comes shown. in. So we can talk about that too. Um, I really think that the Log Lady intro at this point is is just posing questions to us to think about before. It's like a teacher before you watch a video says, you should pay attention to this while we're watching the yeah. video. You know, it's not really, I'm not getting a sense that it's illuminating much at this point, no. but. That's true. Well, in this particular context, because you have two characters who are in comas, what she says about being in a sort of um, middle ground. Right. Makes sense because, um, well, comas in general are not, understood very well mm-hmm. um, and there are certain schools of thought to say that um, you know your, your body's there but your spirit is elsewhere yeah. um, having been in a coma <laughs> I can say that <laughs> your spirit's not doing much of anything <laughs> um, Interesting. but that she was that she was probably trying to tie the events of the show to uh, a, an overreaching esoteric theme hmm. which is one of Liminality, which we see repeatedly in, in Twin Peaks, particularly liminal spaces, because right. the, the town itself has its own liminal space with the forest and Glastonbury Grove. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a good point. That's yeah, good point. That, that's definitely um, 
Yeah, it figures in here. Too, it yeah. adds another dimension yes. to this. So yes. yeah. already our discussion is benefiting from your yes. um, <laughs> your participation, Harvey. That's great. I'm gonna break down the second Hank comes out. I'm gonna I'm gonna say something vile. <laughs> that's totally fine. No, that's that's totally fine. We I'm have gonna, also I'm helpful. To get a clown horn and honk it whenever. <laughs> I yeah, say we can. We can do that. Yeah. In post, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so, yeah, let's get to this first scene because it is Cooper and Albert talking mm-hmm. at breakfast. Um, and it's 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 a great little scene just between these two colleagues. Um, Albert gives his rundown of what was found during the autopsy of Jacques Renault, and he lists off a bunch of stuff that was found in his belly, which uh, Cooper takes a lot of delight in. Um before this point, Cooper goes into a little bit of a, I don't know, a tangent, I guess. I don't know how it got started. We kind of interrupt yeah, the conversation in the middle. middle. But he's going on about this this group of Tibetans known as the Happy Generations. And and it's it's just so funny to hear Agent Cooper, who is always happy and bright and smiling and very rarely gets angry, talking to Albert, who... We haven't seen smile genuinely, really, at all since we've met him. So, um, yeah. I don't think we ever do. I no, I don't. I really don't think so. It's it's only like this mirthless chuckle he has every once in a while, which yeah. is like ironic more than anything. Yeah. But uh, maybe in the later episodes, yet a little bit of a grin, maybe. maybe I don't but remember, it's not but even yeah. really like it's nothing approaching Cooper's level no. of joy. No. Joy. Yeah. So. So it's this nice little contrast between, and it's set to the barbershop quartet, which I it's love. So this great, barbershop yeah. quartet singing in the background, which well, is they're just, like they're humming. In the yeah, they're not even singing; yeah. they're just humming. Yeah, they're warming up. Yeah, yeah it's really cool. Yeah, so um, many interesting people cross through the the lobby of the Great Northern yeah. <laughs> throughout the rest of the season. So One per episode, at least that's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I thought that the musical setting was cool because it's very David Lynch and mm-hmm. very you know bringing the fifties to the eighties. Yeah. Really. Um, yeah, that, that was interesting. But I also found that the content of their discussion, this is the first time, A, you get a bit more of a hint of what the, the waiter and giant yes. situation uh, set up as. Because um, you find out the waiter was real. Albert talked to him. Yeah. So that kind of That was something the, that we wondered about. Yeah, if, in the if last the, episode. If the waiter was even a real person or not. And then, oh, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, well, I think just yeah. because of the link between um, the Human. waiter and the giant, you think maybe they might not be actual people in the real world but because albert has interviewed him kind of puts it to rest but yeah yeah Yeah. um and you also get the first mention of windham earl yes exactly dedication to duty wasn't the only thing that brought me back here cooper what else windham earl agent earl he's retired to a nice comfy chair complete with wrist restraints at the local laughing academy what happened nobody knows your former partner flew the coop coop he escaped vanished into thin air that's not good yeah so i forgot entirely that his name even appeared this early yeah exactly i was like oh yeah they just tacked him on after they reveal laura's killer but no they, they were trying to set it up here, but um, I don't know. It's kind of, I don't know. It's like they just, like, drop the name and it's supposed to be ominous. But Well, yeah, you don't get a lot of clues about what he's, what's going on. But Cooper's reaction yeah, it's very... and and Albert's kind of reaction to Cooper's reaction, it, it, 
implies a lot about what's going on with Wyndham Earl. I don't know. Did you have anything uh, to add about that, Harvey? Or the, the setup was good. I thought it was very solid mm. um, because the characters mentioned you get background about him. You see how um, they all react to hearing his name, and Albert doesn't start expositing like a leaky faucet. He doesn't go into you know, acres and acres of backstory the yeah. way um, a, a, a lot of shows do when they introduce a new character who's going to be significant. Yeah. He's talking to Dale like Dale knows who this person is yes. already. Yeah. It's not one of those, pretend I don't know that what such and such is moments that yeah. a lot of television writers resort to. Yeah. So, um, unfortunately, there's not much good to say about Wyndham Earl after this, <laughs> but before we actually see him, He's, he's well-grounded in the narrative. Yes. Yeah, that's a really great point because it, it is, um, it's a nice touch. And I think it's it's a it's a skillful writer who can do that. In, in You're right, a lot of television shows, it's just lazy writing where they'll just treat the audience the way that they're treating the characters. They just dump all this information and it's not really... Um, well, it's, it's, it's not, not yeah, it's not realistic, it's not yeah, interesting, it's just, no. you know, this, I'm like, who is this Wonder Merle character? I want to know more, and they've given me just enough to keep it going, and you know his name, his yeah. name is unique enough, so. There's, yeah. there's also the the way this scene kind of ends is, it's like a slow, plan, slow pan over to uh, the Asian, the Asian gentleman, yes. of, uh, who's there. Is no, it the we, same? Is it the same guy that Audrey saw the night before, or two nights no, before, or whatever? No. Yeah, it it is. It is. It is it. Because I thought that guy was smaller. Yeah, he's he's the same man who's okay. checking into the Great Northern, okay. and um, he's um, he was the one who called uh, the um, uh, Blue Pine Lodge. I forget the name of where Josie lives, but he called yeah. Josie's house looking yes. for her. Yes. Yeah. yeah and, you're right. You're uh, right. And got Harry instead. Yes, that's yeah. correct. Talk about an ominous character. He's yeah. Just, he's just like, that guy everywhere he goes, you're just like, oh, what's going on? Yeah, well, he's <laughs> yeah, he's already interacted with a few characters, and, and every time we've seen him on, excuse me, every time we've seen him on screen, it's been kind of, yeah, ominous. So, um, but here he is watching Cooper talk to Albert, which is an interesting, yeah. an interesting setup. We're, we're wondering how he's going to yeah, play into he, things. Yeah, so. is he eavesdropping even? You can't tell. Yeah. 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 Clearly linked with Josie. Yeah. Um, because of his that. previous interaction with her or trying to get in touch with her. But beyond that, we know nothing about him. So mm-hmm. so they're dropping a lot of characters in that are or two major characters already in the first 10 minutes of the show that uh, without a lot of backstory, you just want to know what's going on with them, where where are they going. And, and well, Yeah, but you get, the, you get the gist of it yeah. very quickly, even just by, you know, the ominous uh, response to Wyndham Earl's yeah, name. Exactly. And then the same thing with this... Uh, the visual pan is just like a, a literal connection to the yeah. next character, yeah. which is this uh, the Asian businessman. Mm-hmm. Um, so is there anything else in that scene? I know you guys really love Albert. He's great. He's, he's always, great. Yeah, he's just yeah. delightful. <laughs> um, Do you have anything else to add there, Harvey? Or? Um, I, I thought the exchange was was actually very charming. Um, Dale is, is very sweet in this scene. We see his character kind of vacillate wildly between these extremes of... of um, being extremely um, open and, and caring and almost naive mm-hmm. and then sort of foolish and, and almost sinister. Right. But this is this this is a scene in which he he's obviously happy to be in 
childbirth present, which is again a contrast be between, um, I, I believe, their last interaction when he couldn't hustle Albert out of town fast enough. Yes. And he repeatedly apologized for Albert's behavior. Yes. Um, so it was it was nice to see Dale and Albert being nice, basically, um, because it, it up until that point we, we don't really understand why it is that Dale trusts him, why he wants him around. Yes, Albert's very professional and he's good at what he does, but there's no there's no sense of emotional uh, uh, resonance. There's no rapport, and with Dale, something like that I think would be important. Mm -hmm. um, he asks he asks for Albert specifically. He says that Albert has more on the ball than Sam. Right. But I think that it's just that he knows Albert better. Right. Mm -hmm. um, because Sam, of course, as we'll learn in the movie, has experience with these cases, probably more experience than Albert. Yes. So um, it, it it was it was a good scene because you you get you get the idea that these people actually like each other and like working together as opposed to Dale just kind of tolerating Albert. Yes, mm -hmm. which is exactly how we've been left feeling in previous interactions between the two of them that well yeah. yeah and it's really helped shape albert's character right yeah. he's like this yeah. ordinary guy that you're not supposed to like he he is supposed to be kind of a hindrance and this is like the season two kind of starts remodeling albert's character to make him a little more likable like there's a scene in the first yeah, episode yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> where he yeah. uh he listens to the story about uh big ed and nadine and how they met and he has that hilarious reaction of right. trying to hold back laughter and you feel for him even though yeah. he's kind of a jerk still but same time you're like yeah it's funny like and he, he, he let, thing was so overwrought. yeah oh yeah <laughs> it's great though I, I love it because like albert's just yeah he's kind of a standard for the audience at that point because yeah. you're like what is this yeah. crazy story with ed and yeah so you kind of go along with for mm -hmm. that and he, yeah he's just a bit easier to empathize with and in yeah. season two for sure and this yeah. is continuing that trend i find so yeah exactly yeah um, so move on. What what happens next? I think yeah, I missed we, a scene. Yeah, we go straight to the uh, the Tremont home. And Donna, oh, yeah. who now works for the Meals on Wheels, she's taken over Laura Palmer's uh, Meals on Wheels route, her delivery route. So she is delivering a meal to these elderly shut-ins in the community. And she meets Mrs. Tremont and wow. her grandson, and this is the first time we see creamed corn play a role here. So there's this mysterious couple, this this grand grandmother and her son or grandson. Um, Donna brings in the food. The grandmother um, sees Asks, the food yeah. <laughs> and is appalled that there's creamed corn on the plate because she specifically asked for no creamed corn. And then there's some interesting interplay here with the uh, the grandson who's practicing magic and. Uh, removes the creamed corn and Donna is amazed by this and there's there it's it's creepy but you don't mm. get the sense that Donna is afraid or anything like that really? so you well she always almost seems like I don't know I think she's upset at the end at upset? the end yeah like when she's leaving she she seems upset like okay. visibly just kind of a little shaken hmm. I don't know maybe that's just me but it, it was a very strange scene I thought because um, I think that she underreacted mm -hmm. um, it was almost like she was in a trance. The entire scene is very dreamlike, so maybe yeah. we're meant to to associate her reactions with dream logic. Yeah. Yeah, that could be too. No, yeah, for sure. And then uh, that's why I feel like her reaction doesn't really start until she gets out of the house and she tops over at what's his nuts. Yeah. Well, yes, yeah. because she <laughs> she talks to Mrs. Tremont about um, if Laura, she knew Laura yeah. and 
and Mrs. Tremont says, you should talk to Harold next door. He was he was Laura's friend. And so, yeah, that's when his name is Harold. Harold. Harold Smith. Thank you, Mr. Smith. <laughs> Um, so yeah, Donna goes over to see him, but doesn't get an answer from him. She leaves a note for him. But, um, so again, yeah, yeah, second scene, we've got more characters coming in and characters who knew Laura, which is interesting too, because, um, they, we've never heard of these people before. And yet here they are. It's another side to Laura's life. This whole Meals on Wheels volunteer after school thing that she had going on, but it's another layer to her character that's being revealed, you know, 10 episodes in so um yeah yeah but, no, yeah so yeah well i was just gonna say like the it is very dreamlike the whole scene yeah. um and it is the well it's 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 the first kind of instance where um dream logic is kind of well not the first instance sorry i spoke too soon but it's one of the instances where dream logic is kind of applied in the real world right the other ones are usually around uh, leland and music and stuff like yes. that where, where supernatural stuff seems to take place in the real world as opposed to through a vision or or a dream. A dream yeah. Um, and it's interesting because the weirdest thing about this scene isn't even this scene. It's when Donna comes back and it's a totally different house and they're not even in there. They don't even live there anymore. Right. And the characters are gone. Um, like, that. that's that's really... Like, this scene really stands out. It has a lot of importance, I think, in the mythos of Twin Peaks. That's right, kind which of, is only just starting to be... Yeah, to be built yeah. here. Yeah, yeah but it, especially with the cream corn... And, I mean, you've obviously... The log lady talked about it, so it's got to be important. And it's creepy how he magically moved it without moving. Um, and then later on, when you find out what cream corn it does represent in the in the series, it's like, oh, why did she not want cream corn? Yeah. And, and it, it, yeah. it adds that layer to it, so... Do you have do you have yeah. any insight into this, Harvey? Well, I mean, how, how much do you want me to talk about <laughs> the movie? I don't, I, I don't really know how far ahead you, are you assuming that the listeners have, are familiar with the entire canon, or no, we're, do you we're want trying, me to stick to the episode? Yeah, mm-hmm. we're trying to stick to mostly just okay. spoil, spoiler-free as possible, but yeah. All right, um, well, I can't really say what I want to say. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm, no, in, the, I'm in the same boat. <laughs> like, I think this is a really interesting scene in the whole yeah. mythos, but... Here it's just it's just really creepy. Um, I, sorry, gone. No, yeah, I was just gonna say here it's just creepy and it's it's magical mm-hmm. and it's dreamlike. Um, well, it's literally magical because she talks about how he, her grandson is literally yeah, okay, practicing magic. When you magic, say but, practicing magic, it's no, like I, card tricks and stuff. Yeah, this is magic, magic. Like yeah, this is, exactly. Yeah. So it's a different. It's obviously they're referring to it differently. They're using it yeah, in a yeah. different way. What, what she says, actually, which is interesting, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you again, I keep... No, no that's no, fine. By all means. Um, what she actually says is that he's studying to become a magician. Right. And, as you know, magician is, is a significant word within yes. um, the Twin Peaks mythos. Yes. Um, and, yeah, and clearly what he does is not stage magic because he no. can't do that with mirrors. Right. Um, so I think that even though it's not explained at this point in time, we're meant to understand that there's something um, supernaturally off about these people. Yeah. Even their appearance is, is odd. Um, there's something of, of the tableau vivant about the way they're presented to us. Yes. The, the grandson is in the chair and he's wearing a tuxedo. Yeah. And she's fed and she doesn't move from the bed. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, very, it's very reminiscent of the Black Lodge scenes in that respect. Yes, exactly. And I think it helps that, again, 
this is a David Lynch episode through and through. The the little grandson is played by David Lynch's son. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, so you even get this like visual like the first thing I noticed when I watched it before I knew it was Austin Lynch, I was like, Holy crap, how did it they get this? Like David Lynch. Looks exactly like David Lynch, a young <laughs> David Lynch, and then it's his it kid, was, so yeah. <laughs> but um yeah. yeah, so well, it's funny because yeah, trained to be a magician like is a stand-in for Lynch, right? Obviously, so it's like he's well, trained to become a, a filmmaker. Like yeah, that's well, like the the magic of cinema, which is another Lynch kind yeah. of standby through Mahal and Drive and everything else. So. Right. Um, but yeah, no, it's I mean it's it's a really cool scene and it really does like plays a lot a much bigger role than you think in this episode. In this episode, all it does is really say, "Okay, go talk to Harold." Yeah. That's yeah. plot wise. That's all it does. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't even conclude this episode. She doesn't no. even talk to Harold this episode. So it's really just a very yeah, it's, piece. It but sets the ball in motion, but it doesn't take it, it anywhere yet. Beg the question, though: Why did but did um, Mrs. Tremont have some ulterior motive in? Directing Donna to Harold. It's yeah. exactly something I've been thinking about because she actually sets in motion a chain of events. Yes. Um, which are which are pretty important to the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sort of makes her. And um, this is kind of an overblown term, but it sort of makes her an agent of fate, whether right. it's intentional or not. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think that's it. When you. Yeah, you can't really talk about this without talking about Firewalk with me. But but yeah. when you when you kind of start to learn who are the lodge dwellers and who are the people that like the agents of the Black or White Lodge, we're not even really sure. We don't even know what those are at this point. But when you start to learn about that and you start to look at these these two, the Trimon characters, are they good? Are they bad? Does it matter yeah. at this point? You're right. Like it's there's nothing really going yeah. on, but she does set into motion this series of events that leads to some pretty important, you know, uh, plot points a few episodes from now. So, yeah, it it leaves more questions than answers and really only becomes contextually important as the series goes on. Mm -hmm. So, which is, it's so interesting that a TV show can do that because this is something you see in film, but TV shows rarely go into this kind of depth. So... I think yeah. that's that's really yeah. you know something no. you expect from David Lynch, but yeah. so yeah, so yeah. Anyway, Donna yeah. goes to see uh, Harold Smith, doesn't get in, yeah. in touch with him, and we just off. Yeah, we move on yeah. to the uh, the hospital, and Ronette, who has woken yes. up from her coma but has yet to speak. And we get this adorable scene. I don't know, Harvey, I don't know if, if you love. I think it's adorable. It's kind of. I don't know. It's like a black humor, almost like with with Agent Cooper I, and Sheriff Truman in the chairs. I know. I love that. I love um, it. It's so cute. <laughs> well, it's also very realistic. Because totally. It's impossible to do anything with hospital furniture. It all <laughs> operates on its own logic. Yeah. The tables don't stay up. The chairs won't stay down. <laughs> the bed is trying to kill you. <laughs> Nothing works the way it's supposed to work in a hospital. That's funny. It's almost a metaphor for Twin Peaks. Like, nothing works as it's supposed to. Nothing does what it's supposed to do. <laughs> and here it is in the hospital. You can't get those. Besides which? It defies a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're spinning and stepping. And, yeah, yeah it, it's, it is. It's hilarious. It's, it's it really funny. funny. And uh, and you're right. It is very realistic. And it's it's it reminds me of, um, there was another scene earlier on 
Oh, the very in the very first episode, in the pilot episode, where Lucy's directing Sheriff Truman to the telephone, and it's just oh, this yeah. excessive, you know, just a it does not time wise. It's just time. It's well, like, it's something it does that not you would need to take yeah, five minutes, you but. and but you would never explain it in another TV show. You would just have the character do what they know is supposed to happen, right? Mm-hmm. You would never need to go through the instructions of how to fix the chair. They would just There's do a it. Call back to that in this episode, actually. Is um, it really? <laughs> Yeah, because um, she um, she transfers a call to his office and she goes into uh, yeah. an elaborate explanation oh, of what's yes. actually happening. Yes. Yes. And it makes me think of the, um, the I, I listened to the podcast you did for the um, the last episode today. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not the last episode, but the, the last podcast you posted, I listened to it today. Yes. And I was um, listening to you talk about that horrible, horrible scene at the gun range. Yes. When... Um, <laughs> with the penises, when mm-hmm. uh, Lucy calls in over the intercom to tell them about um, the, the files that she's been given from the veterinarian. Right. And uh, it's supposed to be illustrative of how men and women don't even speak the same language in mm-hmm. a literal sense because she has information, but it's not the information that Harry asked for. Yeah. It's sort of mixed up. But the thing about Lucy is that her, her way of communicating isn't, um, isn't typically feminine or stereotypically feminine because she's very literal and that's Mm -hmm. something that tends to be associated with men and with male characters. Yeah. So it's not, it it, it falls apart as as a metaphor because women don't tend to communicate in this way. Right. But Lucy does. So it's not that women can't communicate with men, it's that Lucy has a unique way of expressing herself that people either adapt to or don't. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, no, definitely. And 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 you see who can like Sheriff Truman has adapted to it. Got he it understands down. it. Yeah. Andy Obviously. hasn't well, quite. Well, kind of. <laughs> some ways, yes. A, yeah, but yeah, not from what we see anyway. Yeah, no, that's and that's then, a yeah, good Cooper point. Cooper is yeah, like he's trying. Yeah. Cooper tries. He's yeah. he's working his best, but yeah. Well, the, the funny thing about that is that the the three men that you mentioned um, are very emotional people. So mm-hmm. maybe that's what the issue is because. Lucy is very in touch with her emotions, but her way of expressing them is very, um, it's, it's again, very literal. It's very pragmatic. Yes. It's rooted in, in what she sees and, and physically experiences. Yes. But the three of them tend to understand emotional issues in a more abstract way. That is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, for sure. It's, yeah, layered communication and different, the ways that different people communicate and the blocks to those communications we could probably do a whole episode on that We're just alone. That, yeah. Well, the mediums we've really talked about. That would be, yeah, yeah. definitely. So, yeah. and we've touched on it a few times yeah, already. Yeah, but in different ways. Yeah. It's it's worth looking into. Yeah. Um, speaking of communication, here they're trying to get Runet to identify the attacker. Right. Uh, they show her. Who's the first one? They show her Leo's photo. Yeah, they show her Leo. She's like, meh. and then Bob freaks out. Yeah. Well, she show they show her the the drawing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just did I say photo? I probably did say photo. Yeah. Yes, but the drawing. Um, and yeah, she freaks out. Yeah, she freaks out, and it's um, yeah. So it's it's that. I, two, there's two things that are interesting to me in the scene besides the plot and obviously the spinning chairs is uh, the way he focuses on the he allows the the drawing to come into focus. Yeah. It's very um, 
it's very effective at kind of giving the sense of what she's experiencing. Yeah. Uh, even though you really have no idea visually what it would be like or anything, but just that the way it's warped and well uh, fuzzy, and then it comes into yeah. Well, it comes into focus, but it's even like it's almost haphazard that mm-hmm. it comes into focus. It's like mm-hmm. she's trying, she's trying, she's struggling, she's struggling, and then it just happens all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very. Lynchian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, not Lynchian, but it is, it's a very typical move on his part. Um, and then also when she freaks out and she's breaking, she breaks something and the light dies. Yeah, right. But it, you know, that would be kind of like the end for most, uh, most directors. Yeah. But he just, he just stays on her and she's making these horrible grunting sounds and it's, it's almost yeah, like. Yeah, well, I think she's yeah. trying to say train. She's talking Well, she says train, train a couple yeah. times, but then that's the thing. Like, she says that, and then Cooper's like, oh, were you on the train? She nods, and then, you know, there's no more information Before. displayed after that. But the scene goes on, and yeah. she keeps kind of wailing, and it's, it's a very it's a very visceral kind of reaction that, that he captures. And well, it's unsettling, and it's the first of a couple is. unsettling scenes in this episode that, yeah. that really, yeah, like, take it take your emotions and take you to that heightened place yeah. right yeah 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 i just thought that was interesting how he did it because mm-hmm. there's lots of ways to go about it but um yeah yeah this is a very cool scene that way that is very good um from there we jump to the great northern to ben and jerry and i know harvey you are not a fan of ben and jerry i or- hate them so <laughs> They're so awful. They, really they have are. no redeeming qualities. None whatsoever. Aside from the, the odd. played like, them very good. Yes. Yes. Very much so. Other than that. Yeah. The, aside from a few like funny one-liners here and there, yeah. they really serve. And, and, and like Aiden and I have talked about this, that we don't even really know for most of the first season what the hell they're doing. And then yeah. now. now they... Sorry. Go ahead. I don't think they do. I think yeah, they yeah. the scene where they don't they have they they're like what would Ledger do we Yeah. Oh, I don't know, let's roast marshmallows. Yeah, exactly. They're just so it's I don't really feel like they, they don't it their plot isn't moved along at all. It's just, you know, like yeah. colorful character commentary that we're getting here. Like, yeah, we, we have this very important we've committed fraud and arson and major crimes, but let's roast some marshmallows. Where are those hickory sticks? You know, like it's it's so yeah. I mean, yeah, this is like a two second plot development wrapped in like a five minute. Yeah, Jerry eating yeah. his his Smoked cherry cheese, cheese pig. Yeah, pig, yeah. So, brother Ben, we've got two ledgers and one smoked cheese pig. Which one do we burn? And it ain't gonna be my pig. Yeah, I mean, I I enjoy their scenes because they're so ridiculous and stupid and yeah. like. I just I find them enjoyable characters to watch. Like I, I don't like them really, but yeah, I still find them funny and yeah. like yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing that I think is interesting though is that Ben kind of loses his um, well his shit really. He kind of loses his shit whenever Jerry's around. Yeah. He suddenly yeah. becomes more immature, more impulsive, um, less methodical because the the one thing that we know about him is that he plans. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. He, very he much. has all. He's he's living a double, a triple life that requires some level of organization. Yeah. He's been carrying on this way for probably about twenty years, if um, his his uh, entrapment of Blackie is any indication. Yeah. Um. So he and he's been running a successful, two successful businesses as well. Yeah. 
as well as trying to become a real estate developer. Yes. So he's obviously good at something. Yes. Um, but whenever Jerry appears, he he sort of like he, he, he goes back to being a 12-year-old boy. Yeah, that, he, that's yeah. exactly what I was going to say, is that they almost revert back to their childhood brother states that yeah. is... Well, it's basic urges, right? Like, yeah, well, and maybe that's... Yeah, exactly. And, food yeah. And, and they call back to their childhood memories. There's a scene mm-hmm. in a couple of episodes where they talk about uh, yeah. the babysitter that they used to have oh, and yeah. stuff. Yeah. So, And the food thing is a really interesting one, too, because they're always eating. The two of them are always yeah. eating or talking about food. So it really is like when the two of them are together, they just kind of devolve into younger versions of themselves mm-hmm. almost, which is yeah. is interesting kind of backwards development yeah. in a sense. Yeah, but it is. Yeah, I mean, the, again, yeah, it's fun to watch. But, I mean, yeah, there's, yeah. Not, much, there's not much character there. Yeah, really. not at all. And definitely no yeah. plot. You know. Well, yeah. This the whole plot of this scene is just so convoluted. It's like they went through the whole first season to get you know these two books and set fire to the mill and kill uh, Catherine, Catherine and, and everyone. And yeah. then they're like, oh, but we don't have an end game. Like, yeah. what, what what was the point of doing all that if you didn't know what you were gonna do with the with the mill and everything at the end? Yeah. It made no sense. So, yeah. But I mean, it was yeah. Again, and it's a good David Lynch scene because he he turns that fact into something that's watchable. Yeah. So. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but yeah. Um, Do you want to go to Andy? Is yeah. That next? Yeah, the double, double R. R. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And. Uh, so Andy's wrapped in tape. Well, yeah, they're putting up posters yeah. to. Um, identify Bob. Identify Bob, and yeah, Andy is struggling with the tape dispenser. Andy. <laughs> um, which really, yeah, serves no other purpose other than just to have Harry Goaz be funny on camera, which is. He's good at it. He's very yeah, good at he it. He is. And, He's very good. Um, But the scene is interesting, too, because it does get Major Briggs and the Log Lady together for the first time, I think. Probably the only time. Well, they... Do they meet again in season? I think later in the season they do. They do? Okay. But this is the first time, I think, where they meet. And this is interesting because um, Major Briggs has this kind of... um, He's he's a major. He's very, you know, grounded in the real world Air Force... Mm -hmm thing that he does but there's a sense that in this episode that he's uh almost well the way that the log lady talks to him like the log lady obviously in tune with some kind of greater understanding of of the universe or Mm -hmm. the spirituality the way that she talks to him and the way that he talks back to her there's almost a sense that he understands it too which is the first time i think that Mm -hmm. we get a sense that major briggs might be connected to something bigger than that yeah um, yeah. So I don't know. I know Harvey. You you are not a fan either of Major Briggs. So I thought I'd throw this to you and see if you have any insight or what you'd like to add about this scene. Uh, well, it, it is an interesting scene, and I I dislike Major Briggs as a person, mm-hmm. but uh, again, John Davis does a fine job of, of of acting as him. Yeah. Um, and his writing is consistent. Yeah. Um, that's. <laughs> That's the least I can say for, for just about every, every character on the show. Even if I hate their guts, yeah. the acting is great, the writing is great. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting to me because um, Major Briggs is aware of certain forces, but he can't access them directly. Yes. He has a, a great store of, of worldly power, yeah. but he's, he's 
basically a babe in the woods when it comes to the oogity boogity shit. Yes. The log lady, on the other hand, is directly in touch with these forces in a in a in a very um, at, at once in a in a, in a very um, strange, otherworldly way, but then in a very homey way because mm-hmm. she it's her log. Yeah. So this is her log. Yeah. Um, and. Even though it's a separate entity, it's, it's almost an extension of her. Um, yeah. And he, he's, at one point he says um, that he hasn't been introduced to her log. Right. And she says, I don't introduce the log. Yeah. Sort of, and, and that's sort of, um, to me it was her saying in, in a roundabout way, this is not an affectation, this, this, I'm not a novelty act. Yeah. This, this is real. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, was, it was saying all that. With, without actually putting it into those words. Yeah. Because I think that Briggs sort of tests people. Um, I, I think that he he approaches the world as someone who's sort of above a lot of things. Yeah. And we sort of see this actually before he interacts with the log lady. Right. He's watching Andy with a tape. Yeah. And uh, I, I, re- I recapped this scene, and this is what I wrote in the recap. Yeah. Um, that uh, at first he's, he's watching him with, with sort of like um, the detachment of an absent god, uh-huh. but then he actually takes an interest, and his detachment turns into kind of a, a big contempt. Okay. Because he's, he's watching Andy struggle, and he doesn't have a, a compassionate response. Right. He, he, he looks at him sort of like, what is this man doing? Yes, that's true. That is true. That's what I do. So too. when <laughs> so when he when he um, when he uh, interact with the log lady, um, he's sort of forced into a position of deferring to her. And to his credit, he, he actually does. He takes it seriously. Yes. He understands yeah. she knows things that he can't possibly know. Yeah. And yeah. and um, conversely, when he tells her that he, uh, that he understands what she's saying, that it's meaningful to him, she looks sort of relieved. Yeah. Because I think yeah. since people saying things to people and she she doesn't always communicate her meaning very well or she may not actually have a, 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 a communicable meaning to relate mm-hmm. she may just have to put it into the easiest possible terms to speak for yeah, her right um, so they, they both sort of do something for each other in this scene, and it was the least that I had disliked Briggs up until now. Yeah. No, I agree, and and I think part of it is because he does kind of defer to her and and almost, like, in his own way, yeah. respects her because yeah. of the knowledge that she has that he doesn't have. So I think, for for me, my read on, on Major Briggs is that he respects knowledge or he respects... Um, people who know things anyway more than he respects the person doing the knowing right like yeah. if you if you have that knowledge about anything he'll respect the fact that you have that knowledge do you know mm-hmm. what i mean so yeah. um so that's how i think he's he reacts to her and i really i do like that about this scene to go back to something that you said um earlier about how he he doesn't have direct access to the world that she has and it's it's made very clear when she asks him if he can hear the log and he says he can't yeah. so she'll translate for him i think that's a really great um encapsulation Sorry, yeah. of of the log lady herself like how she's yeah. kind of translating 
from the one world to to this one mm -hmm. through the log. So yeah, well, I mean it, it does lead to some Sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say, um, if I can bring in something about um the symbolism of, of tarot, mm -hmm. um she sort of embodies the uh the card of the high priestess. Yes. Because the high priestess um is is sort of like a conduit for knowledge. She she has passive knowledge as right. opposed to someone like the magician who's actively playing with forces that they may not be able to understand. Yes. So she she sort of in a way channels the log. I mean, she just obviously, she obviously doesn't channel the log, but she she's um, she's a go-between um, for the log yes. and whoever she's communicating to. Whereas Major Briggs, um, he sort of embodies the role of the Hierophant, who is um, which is basically the Pope. Right. He's uh, a representative of powers, and he um, he he. He may, he has he has a special relationship with those powers, but mm -hmm. he doesn't act. God doesn't actually talk to him. Right. Yeah. Um, and the high priestess is sometimes called the female pope. Ah. So, yeah. So oh, interesting. Um, I, I don't know if this is actually intentional, but they in this in this scene in particular, the two of them very clearly embody these roles. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I was just going to bring up. Um, there, I don't know if you've seen this or not, but somebody has come up with a Twin Peaks tarot deck. I have. Have you great. seen that? Yeah. yeah and I and I, I wonder, yeah. did did they have the same interpretation? Did you did you check them out? Like, what what where um, did they put? Because I think they did put the Log Lady as the High Priestess, but I can't remember where they put Major Briggs. It would be interesting to see because that's maybe if more than one person is having yeah. this interpretation, maybe this was intentional. And I think that's that's really interesting to mm -hmm. to think about. You know, I can actually tell you that right now because sure. I have it on my Tumblr. I'm going to see if I can find it. Oh, entry. brilliant. Yeah. Forgot about it consciously, but remembered it subconsciously and thought I was smart. That's so funny. No, I, I prefer to think that, that this is legit, that there there is a conscious effort on the part of the writers too, because, I mean, there's so many, and Harvey, we were going to talk about this in a separate part, but... There's so many yeah. instances of the occult being brought into things yeah. here, so I would not put it past them if they actually did consider, you know, tarot symbolism mm -hmm. when they were constructing I, these characters. So I like that explanation because yeah. it makes it sound like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm plagiarizing someone that I forgot about on Tumblr. <laughs> That's funny. I'm sure you um, didn't. The artist, the artist's name, by the way, of the Twin Peaks tarot is Benjamin Mackey. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and I think we'll put a link to that in the... So I can give credit where credit is due. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, we'll put a link in there. You, I think you can still buy them. Um, it was a Kickstarter project, I think, when it started. Yeah. And I think it was funded, obviously, so now the, the decks are available. So um, we'll put a link to that in the SoundCloud page. So. Well, um, I, know, I know he's selling prints. He has a, a oh, really? on Society 6. Oh, Cool. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. There you go. Well, well, yeah, we'll definitely put a link up to his yep. store then so you can yep. you can all check out his work. Yes. It is really it's cool to good. see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um so yeah, from there we jump to or I guess we can say that that Major Briggs gets some kind of information from the log lady that he he does act on it later on in the episode. So that's where we leave him yeah. in the in the double R. But we move right into mm -hmm. the sheriff station where um 
we get a little bit more backstory of Andy and Lucy and what's going on there. Uh, Aiden, did you want to? No, there's no. no. There's, it's too funny. <laughs> but yeah, you get the gist that um, Andy is uh, shooting, shooting blanks. blanks. I guess would be oh. the the euphemism. But um, yeah. right? The yeah. the guns. He's shooting blanks. Oh. Penises. Oh, oh, so good, so good. <laughs> All right, um, I'm done now. But yeah, the the way he discloses this is hilarious because uh, it was the sperm donor bank yes. was low. To me, Lucy Moran, you just listen. The Tacoma Sperm Bank was looking for donors. Naturally, I applied. It's my civic duty, and I like whales. A routine physical examination revealed that I'm sterile. Sure, I thought it meant I didn't have to take a bath, but the doctors told me the truth. They told me I can't have babies. So what I want to know now is why are you having one and how? So it's kind of played for comic relief, but it's also, you know, it does further complicate their story of, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Who got Lucy pregnant? Who got Lucy pregnant? And she we does look, she doesn't, I don't know if I, like her reaction in this scene kind of, uh, I'm stymied by it because you'd think if you had just been accused of cheating on your significant other, you'd be more, I don't know, indignant. But she just kind of she like shuts do. them out. That's not she's very an angry, and it's she never really angry. explained why she's so angry at him. Um, like, yeah, I mean, why would she be angry at him? Well, because she doesn't I know. Have... I the way I always interpreted it now was like once you know who it is, and once you hear kind of her explanation. Was that in the previous episode though, no, where she explains no. it to Cooper? Mm-hmm. Okay, so no, it's in the next one. Yeah. yeah, well, once you get that, it's kind of like she's she's fairly unhappy with Andy. Right. It sounds like so you know. Being accused of this isn't the end of the world for her because maybe. maybe she doesn't really want to be with Andy anymore at this point. It's kind of hard to tell. I mean, it's just funny when she rips off the, the table yeah. off his head again. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know. Poor Andy. Poor Andy. Yeah, I know. But, yeah. <laughs> it's a, he suffers so much. He does. Nice I know. It's and, true. and he is. He's such a sensitive guy that it's hard to watch him be beat up. Very kind and very decent. Yes. And I don't, I mean, I don't really, this doesn't make me dislike Lucy. It just makes me feel bad for both of them because she's obviously going through some shit too. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's one of the more interesting subplots that I really, when I first watched it, I didn't really clue into it. But as I've watched it, I mean, we've watched the series through like, I don't know, a dozen times or so. And I like it even more every time I watch it because it's. Yeah, and the yeah. the way they play it, the actors Harry Goaz and uh, Kimmy Robertson have pretty good chemistry on screen, and I like their they're characters. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, so yeah, they're really like you said, Harvey. Like they're decent people, and mm-hmm. there's not many of them in Twin Peaks who are like truly no, they're, wholesome. There maybe five. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> five so. in the whole town. Yeah, That's true. so and most of them are Donna Hayward's relatives. Yeah. <laughs> that is very true. Yeah. Her dad. Maybe Harriet. Well, not her dad. <laughs> her mom. Her mom. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, yeah. 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 That's true. So. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's just more um, interest in that storyline that now you want to find out. What's going on? What's going on? There Maybe Lucy isn't as wholesome as we think she exactly. is. Clearly, she's not. She's cheating on Andy. So. But. Uh, Naughty. <laughs> so true. Um. So still in the sheriff station, we. Uh, go over to I think the it's 
Cooper who walks in and kind of takes us over to yeah, well, Harry's office. Yeah, and is Hank already there? Hank is already in yeah, the office. Yeah, so a dangling domino. Yes, this is this is Hank's introduction in this episode. His the first uh, thing they actually see is the is the the, the taxidermy deer head. Oh yeah. yes, yeah, right. The buck stopped. The buck here. stopped here. Which is the second time that Hank has been associated with. Actually, wait. Yes, we did see the the scene with Josie and the horns and in her uh, library. Right. It's yeah. the second time he's been associated with a deer. Um, yes. I have no idea what they were actually going for here because um, the the esoteric significance of deer is not really in keeping with who Hank is as a person because mm-hmm. they're usually symbols of um, mystery and... Um, religious purity and something uh, unobtainable, mm-hmm. uh, courtly love, and none of that is Hank. No, no, not at all. So I'm wondering if it's supposed to be like an ironic relationship well, it's, it's, between them. I think it's the more game. like the, it's a, a testament to what he kind of hurts. Like he, oh, he's yeah. the killer of innocence and, you know, a bad guy <laughs> through and through. So, huh. I, but he's not as bad as some of the people on the show. That's no, no, it's, for it's sure not. not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's not beating up Norma, and he's not prostituting teenage girls. Yes, so that's, that's, good that's, for you, that's true. <laughs> it's a low bar yeah. in Twin Peaks. It's, <laughs> it's a true. really low bar. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that—that's an interesting interpretation. That maybe he is. That's. Because they're only, um, they're stuffed or they're dead animals that mm-hmm. he's been associated with, right? Yeah. So, and they're hunted animals. So maybe mm-hmm. there's a sense of him being the hunter more than anything or him hunting something. Yeah, or potentially he's, he's on the surface, is a kind yeah. and gentle and, and loving person. And, and I mean, that's his whole character is the, the, well, the surface of being yeah. good, a good, decent husband, all around good guy. And yeah. then, you know. He the, has this undercurrent of... of yeah, wildness and yeah, yeah. He's one of the many characters who's leading a double life. Oh but yes. The, the thing about Hank though is that he's probably he's sort of hiding in plain sight in that respect because mm-hmm. if, if if someone told you that the owner of of uh, a big department store and a hotel, uh, a pillar of the community, as they used to say, is also um, a drug dealer and a brothel owner. Well, I mean, that might not surprise us now, but yeah. um, back then people would have been shocked. They would have yes. believed it. But if you said that that Hank yeah. was, was, uh, was secretly still doing crime, yeah. people would, would say, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. yeah. Well, well yeah, Truman's even, on him Exactly. The like, yeah, Truman, even in, in, yeah. The, in an earlier episode, was like, can't believe, doesn't believe that people can change um, so he doesn't have any faith that Hank has turned a corner. He doesn't buy the act at all. Well, and that's the thing. I think the best they part about... History. Oh, yes, yeah, they yeah. do have a history. And we learn yeah. about that in this, se- a in this bit. episode yeah. a little yeah. bit. But yeah. I, I find the best part about Hank is how the actor plays him because yeah. he does yeah. that job so well of being oh, a dick yeah. and then being <laughs> trying laying, layering this nice guy routine on top of it. Yeah. Like, even in this scene, he's... He's trying to be nice and jovial, and he's trying to introduce himself to Cooper again. Yeah. And then he's just a dick. He, like, signs just a big H on the <laughs> the check-in form for probation. Yeah. It's like he can do both at once, yes. and it, he does it really, really well. Like, that's why I love him. Well, it's totally nuanced, and I think, Harvey, you brought this up uh, previously, that um, th- that Chris Mulkey is the actor, and he, yeah. he plays this role um, almost ironically, I think, compared to some of the other thug 
characters that we've encountered in Twin Peaks. Like, I yeah, think you and, mentioned Bobby and Mike. Yeah. As the contrast. Um, yeah. Bobby, Mike, uh, James, yeah. uh, even Leo to a certain extent are all the same character type. Yeah. But um, there's a self-awareness to uh, Chris Mulkey's performance that um, it, it, it's camp, but it's like, it's elevated camp. It's yeah. not like it's, it's not like Bobby screaming his head off at a funeral and James just having non-reactions. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and Leo being a cardboard cutout villain. Yeah. Um, there's he's the most real of all those characters and you get the feeling like there's there's something at work behind what what you see Mm -hmm. um and i i tend to think that hank is is basically trolling everybody all the time like (laughs) the entire scene in harry's office yeah it's it's just it's meant to wind up harry and he does a pretty good job of it oh yeah Uh, and he's, he's very, like, I don't, he's sort of, like, rubbing Harry's face in it, that he's, he's behaving badly, but he's not behaving so badly that Harry can violate his parole. Yeah. Right, um, yeah. He's, he's, he's technically doing what he's supposed to do, yeah. which is darken Harry's doorstep once a week so he can sign in. Yeah. But, like, he even finds his name like an asshole. Yeah. He says hello to Cooper like an asshole. Um, <laughs> and jail, of course immediately intuits that Hank and Harry had this prior relationship. Yeah. Um, but he, he had to have known, like, the second he saw them interact. And he's, he's watching the whole thing like an angry cat. He's looking at Hank like he, he wants to claw his eyes out. Yeah. Um, so it's... I know we're supposed to feel bad for Harry and to, like, assume the same protective stance as Cooper, but, I mean, obviously I'm personally biased here because I love <laughs> stupid asshole but <laughs> Hank is just a joy to watch in this scene because he's having such a good time mm. and, and, and he, I think he wants the other two to kind of appreciate it but right. nobody appreciates his performance yeah he's kind of like, he's kind of sulking to yeah. part of the scene no, that's such a great way of putting it, that he, he is so, he's enjoying it so much, he's just loving this position that he's in, and he's taking such joy out of it, and that, you're right, yeah, like, that, that makes it so much fun to watch, it's just, he, yeah. He has, he has great blood disease, but I yeah. mean, he's, even when he's, like, he's, you know, staring daggers at the coffee machine, and he's, yeah. like, almost plotting somebody's death right in front of them. <laughs> right. Like, that's, like the scene where, like, Shelly's like, oh, it's Ed. And he's like, yeah, big Ed. Yeah. Like, Ed yeah. His wagon. Exactly. But he's like, you, you get the feeling that he's like, he's not really, he's, he's not really an unhappy person the way a lot of the people in Twin Peaks are unhappy yeah. people. Yeah. It's almost like he's accepted that he's not going to be, you know, the upstanding, you know, elder statesman. He's not, yeah. you know, the good guy cop, the true man at the sheriff's department. He's just, he's, he is who he is, and he's going to make the best of it. And I, I kind of almost respect him for it, I guess, in a way, yeah. in a weird way, that he's just kind of, this is my role, and I'm going to just run with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we, I don't think we find out in the run of the series why it is that he and Harry fell out. Um, but, I mean, the, the easiest explanation for it is that he just, Hank just got tired of being good. Yeah. Um, because that seems like 
something he would do. He mm-hmm. would he would just wake up one morning and say, you know, I'm going to be an asshole. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Like, I, I think we only hear that he was a bookhouse boy, and, yeah. and Harry says he was one of the best, or the best. That's it. Um, and that's it. So something happened, and you you could be very right. He just woke up one morning and decided, I'm tired of being the good guy, so I'm just I'm going to try this out for a while, and he liked it more. And then he, and like I said, he just ran with it. So yeah, but uh, yeah, you do get a little bit more of the history in the in the book, the the secret history of Twin Peaks um, by Mark Frost. But um, yeah, yeah, it's never really mentioned at all, aside from right now where he says that they were they were bookhouse boys together. Yeah, and Harry obviously doesn't want to talk to him. Yeah, Yeah. about it, and and he's like, he he, it's probably the only time we see him look sort of angry at Dale or hurt by something that Dale has said, I mean, up until something that happens later on. Right. But that's the, that's the most upset with Dale he's been. Um, because, of course, Dale knows about this. Like, he knows about everything else. Mm-hmm. He, he, he's either really, really good at reading people or he's actually psychic. Right. Um, yeah. And I think Harry found it amusing when uh, Dale was able to, you know, guess about Andy's problems with Lucy. But it's right. not so funny when he's suddenly, you know, aware of Hank's, uh, Harry's uh, painful history with Hank. Yeah. No, that's a good observation because we, we had just talked about this in a previous episode where um, Harry almost trots Cooper out as like a parlor trick. You know, yeah. like, oh, hey, he can read your relationship with, with Norma, Ed. Like, let's test him out. But yeah, now yeah. he's he seems almost yeah annoyed by him or something because he's he's really good at that that job. So yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. And it is I think it is the first time that that Harry and Cooper have any kind of animosity or one way animosity yeah. from Harry to Cooper. But yeah, yeah. it's short lived. But yeah, yeah, you say. So Hank oh. leaves, and we get a quick phone call from. It's not uh, quick. Well, yeah, it's it is. a lengthy, lengthy transfer process first. Oh well, yes, the <laughs> so, transfer process from Lucy, Lucy's yeah. desk to Harry's desk, of Ben Horn's call. Again, it's just such a great character. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I love it. I, yeah, Lucy's the best, and I love that this is the how they express <laughs> yes, that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, you get the call from Ben saying that. Audrey's and Ben's missing. like, uh, yeah, I think my uh, kid might be missing. <laughs> yeah, maybe for as much as two days. Two days. Yeah, he's just so nonchalant. Ah, Ben. And then later on, he, he tells Dale that she just, like, disappears sometimes. Yeah. Like, like she's a cat, and he finds her in the laundry basket. <laughs> no, it's so true. And and we've, we've mentioned this before, too, that it seems like nobody really... Uh, it's not just that... Like, you would expect that Ben would have a little bit more care about his daughter, especially considering yeah. that one of Laura her... just died, yeah. Yeah, like, it's been a week and two days since Laura was murdered, and you'd think that they'd want to know where he'd want to know where his daughter is, right? But he just doesn't care. He just doesn't care. He's too busy fiddling with the ledgers and roasting marshmallows with his brother. Like, it's... Yeah. He just can't... But you get Truman and and Cooper obviously caring, and and this consumes them for, you know, the next couple of episodes, right? So Mm -hmm. at least someone has noticed that she's missing now, and let's give Ben some credit that he does call the sheriff's department late but yeah. he, you know he came to the party and let's embrace that well, fact so. <laughs> it would have looked bad if he hadn't said anything yeah, exactly. exactly so or if like or if jerry made the call yeah, yeah. Jerry was Actually, like, 
Yeah, where's, she's not here anymore. Yeah. Where's Mrs. Horn? I mean, I she's just... under a little saddle shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, yeah, that's a good point, because Sylvia Horn hasn't been in an well, episode she's gone. forever, so... Yeah, I don't know what... She didn't care either. She like, didn't that's care. The, Nobody uh, cares. Poor Audrey. Yeah, poor Audrey. Nobody gives a shit. Except for Cooper. But even he's well, forgotten. Harry cares, too. Harry's like, what? Yeah, yeah. exactly. He's shocked. Yeah. He's, he's horrified. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, you, you have to think, it, he has no personal connection to Audrey, but as a law enforcement officer, he's like, well, all right, one of Laura's classmates has gone missing. It, it wouldn't have mattered who it was. He's just like, yeah. there's a killer on the loose. Like, <laughs> let's well, find this, figure this out. Because he's just a great guy. Well, yes, exactly. Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> he's he's a good guy who's going to care. So, mm-hmm. um, but yes, at least at least they know now we're, we're going to... Hopefully, figure out what what's these, happening. Yeah, yeah. When they're gonna figure out, we know, but we know. they don't know. Yeah. Um, we get another scene at the Great Northern with uh, Ben and Jerry and Leland now, yeah. Um, yeah. which is interesting. Is this the what? the scene where they dance? No, no, that, they dance and that was the previous episode. The previous episode. Yeah, this is this is. Oh yes, Leland yes, screwing yes, up yes. again. Yes. So yes, we yeah. have this this unsigned insurance paper. Mm-hmm. They finally figure out that that Catherine didn't sign the insurance papers, and it's kind of interesting yeah. to me that they don't give well, a crap. Well, again, it's another backtracking of that plot line. They're yeah. Like, oh, maybe it was for the best because she died. Well, why did you take <laughs> it out? Yeah. When you were planning to kill her, then like it just doesn't make any sense. But, yeah. Um, yeah. So they have this the insurance policy, and then. They, uh, they the discuss the, the Icelanders. Yeah, yeah, they're like, we should make a call. And then Leland comes in and says, we should make a call. And then he's already made the call and yeah. just screwed up the whole thing. It's so great. Yeah. Like, he's just so confident oh. and happy with himself. He's like, yeah, I did it already. <laughs> he's, he's so proud. Um, and then he spots the poster of Bob. Yes. So I think this is really just a just a massive conceit to, to get Bob and Leland. Well, connected. Yeah, yeah connected. Yeah. So, Although um, I do love how uh, David Lynch films business deals, like it's all just chaos and like angry emotions and like, like <laughs> whenever the they call the whenever they're calling somebody to fix something, mm-hmm. it's always just like like they're scrambling and everybody's grabbing the phone and trying to like talk over one another. Yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah. Nobody actually. It's the same. The business, especially even in the pilot, where they were talking over each other. Well, yeah, there's the language barriers. Yeah, and all that stuff. Yeah, Yeah, barriers to communication. Barriers to communication. It happens all the time. But he does it a lot with business. I think because David Lynch doesn't give a shit about the business end of films. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just it's an interesting little conceit for for me. Um, But then yeah, uh, you get Bob. And well, yeah, Leland sees Leland one says, of the posters and he says, "I recognize this guy." Yeah, how does he know the him? The entire town is a scene changes. Sorry, the entire town is a scene changes because Leland sees the poster and mm-hmm. he's he's transfixed. It's almost like he's he he's compelled to walk toward it. Yeah, and he of course recognizes Bob, and we get the chilling line, "I was just a little boy, but yes. I know him." Yes, and then after that, what's really interesting is that. Um, Jerry asks if, if this is real or if it's just a horrible dream. Yes, I have that line written down too, which I think is really interesting because that's kind of been the the motif for so much. Well, especially for, if you, again, for David Lynch, a coma is an extended dream state, yeah. right? So this is kind of the episode title actually works in this case. Yeah, absolutely. Because it is like they're questioning it, you know. Yeah. And, but I it mean, goes from a very, sorry. No, no, go ahead. 
uh, but it goes from a very mundane, you know, very uh, uh, workmanlike scene of, of uh, uh, that's, that's exploring a plot point that's sort of only been picked up when it's convenient to um, to something as, as as we keep saying very Lynchian. Yes, because it is about dreams and it is about things that have more than one meaning. Yeah, and it is about you know the horror that lurks behind something completely ordinary. I'm so sorry, and I keep interrupting. No, no, no. No, that's totally fine. So, we, yeah. We're all on the same page here, so it's okay. yeah. No, and that's. I was going to say it's very, it's macabre and it's kind of, um, because the way that Leland describes it, this was a man that he knew when he was a child. Mm. He lived next door to his grandparents, I think. His grandfather's his grandfather's summer 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 house house. on Pearl Lakes. Yeah. So Pearl Lakes up in the mountains, which in the forest, which we Mm. know is full of darkness. So there's, there's something, yeah, you're right. Like this mundane scene that we've, I mean, maybe that's the reason why we had that earlier scene with the ledgers, because this scene, like this, that whole plot line has kind of fallen apart and it's not really all that interesting anymore. So it's our introduction, but it is no longer the important part because it, that's taken over by this very serious, very dark, you know, implication that this murderer is someone that Leland knew when he was a a little boy. Right. And so it, it. Yeah, it takes on some very dark tones towards the end, and that's um, carried through, mm-hmm. you know, the rest of that that storyline anyway. Yeah. Um, sure. Obviously, we know what happens with Bob, but right. if somebody were watching this for the first time, they would sort of wonder what was actually happening, mm-hmm. because um, if Leland knew this guy when he was a kid, that was like 40 years earlier, Yes, and Bob is at least 40 years old. Yes. The guy would have to be 80 now, so obviously he's not, you know, jumping around Sarah's living room. Right. Or hiding behind Laura's bed. So yeah. you have to think one of two things is happening. One, he's some kind of ghost. Mm-hmm. Or two, Leland is completely losing his mind. Yes. And either one of those at this point makes sense, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. you could go either way. Yeah. And, I, yeah, I yeah. always kind of assumed that it was a ghost just because other people had seen yeah. him or a spirit of some sort yeah. because others had seen him. And, uh, I mean, you see him later in this episode with Maddie, right? Right, yes. Um, right. So it's it's really – it's a little too collective unconscious for me to just have, like, it be uh, Leland's imagination only. But, I mean, it's it's certainly possible still. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, – yeah, it's, it's a really cool – change of pace mm-hmm. um, because yeah yeah like nobody really has any idea who this bob character is at this point um and then well except in the previous episode the giant had said that ronette was supposed to be the one that would reveal who bob was and yeah well he says that one other person has seen him the implication being that it was ronette yeah. maybe the giant is talking oh, about leland yeah well that's, yeah. How, that's, oh, how that's really good because so, of what happened in another episode yeah. <laughs> with the mirror. Yeah. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's true. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's there's so many different ways of reading it. Yeah. So, But it, it is a, it is an interesting conceit, and that it happens in this particular scene. Mm-hmm. I, I I like it. I think it... Yeah. it <laughs> I'm glad for the Horn Brothers at this point for well, letting exactly. us have I, this moment. Yeah, yeah. It they is. did something right. They did, yeah. Exactly. yeah. Um, so then, speaking of mirrors... Yeah. We go to Leo in the hospital yes. with a mirror pressed to his face or up against him for no reason. Well, just I think there. I think more than anything, it's just so that we can see his expression on his face. Yeah. It's it's a it's a camera trick, 
but it's not necessary f- medically, I don't think. No. Um, but it's also kind of an interesting thing because it's, it's literally a reversal of the Leo we're used to seeing who's really yes. active and menacing yeah. and now he's hospitalized and completely immobile and not scary anymore yes. too. So I think there's a, there's a, a wee bit of symbolism there. Um, but it's also, the interesting thing for this is it's kind of similar to what they're doing with, um, I don't even remember who I was talking about earlier. Who the, Oh, Albert, how they're trying to trying to rectify his oh, character yes. a little bit in, yeah. in season two. I feel like they're tr- starting to do this with Leo as well. Mm. And the mirror's kind of playing another role. Because Shelley also seems genuinely concerned for him. Right. Um, maybe not. It's kind mm. of hard to, to, to tell in that scene because uh, Doc Hayward's there and she could just be putting on a performance as the grieving mm. grieving wife. but Well, not grieving, but upset wife now that your husband's in the in you know interaction basically mm-hmm. uh but at the same time you get you get, get a little more sense that leo may not be purely the bad guy well i don't know yeah it doesn't really hold up because he his character doesn't change that much in not season that two, much. but a little bit i don't know maybe just me well it's, it's complicated by the nature of their relationships because um abused partners will often still feel um love or even protectiveness toward their abusers. Right. Um, so it's, it's arguable that um, Shelley does still love him. Um, it's also arguable that um, her, her concern is, is a function of the abuse. Um, she, yeah. you know, she feels a, a need to, to protect him somehow even though he abuses her. Right. So, I mean, you really can't just do a straight reading of the scene. She's upset or she's, or mm-hmm. she's um, faking for Dr. Hayward. Yeah. Uh, because there's, it's because a, 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 an abusive relationship is, is never simple. No, exactly. And it could just be, like, this is the first time she's seeing him after the last time, which when she, she shot him. well, no, she Oh, yeah, no, yeah, she, she was trying her, to kill her. Yeah, yeah right. he was, he tied her up in the mill and was <laughs> going to kill her. So it could, there's so many different layers to that. I, I don't think that Shelly's putting on an act, but I think, I, it's hard to tell what her actual, yeah. where her emotions are coming well, from. Well, even in the next scene that she's in, it's really not clear, like, she doesn't want Leo around, but then she's pr- convinced pretty easily. And it's, yeah, it, we'll get to that scene anyways. But yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you guys wanted to add on this? Um, well, yeah. she's also been through physical and psychological trauma. So yes. She's probably still in shock. Of so course. any kind of strong emotional stimulus is going to make her break down a little bit. I mean, yeah. she's overwrought. We don't know what kind of medication she's on. Exactly. We don't know what, if she's still in any kind of pain. Well, yeah, and this is literally, like, 24 hours. It's literally, like, we, we forget how compressed this timeline is, but this is only a day since she's yeah. was in the mill fire, right? So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really high-tension, high-emotional moments that have just passed, right? So, Did we go to the Twin Peaks Sheriff's yeah. next? Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's just a... It's just a really brief scene, right? Yeah. Lucy gets a call... And she yes. refuses to connect them to Sheriff Truman because she doesn't know who they are and they yeah. won't give the name. And I don't know if this is ever cleared up as to who this is. No, yeah, I don't. Do you have I any theories? Um, it kind could of, be anybody. Yeah. I, mean. I kind of thought it was maybe uh, Leland. Yeah. He was like frantic to talk to Truman about um, Bob. Well, Bob but, but then he presents himself in person. Yeah, yeah he exactly. comes anyway. So, so. I don't know. Yeah, um, it, it could have been, you know, Wyndham Earl asking if the refrigerator was running. 
yeah. Uh, yeah. Hey, that's a good point. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. It could be Windermere. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Could be anybody. There's yeah. so many loose ends. Like, and Lynch is famous. Well, not famous, but Lynch does this. Yes. And even in the yeah. in the uh, first couple episodes, he had that man who was in the woods with Leo, right. who you never identified. Um, there's the guy who knocked out what's his name, right. Jacoby, Jacoby, who was never identified, but you kind of think it's probably was... Leo, or Leland. probably Leland, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, but it's never like super clearly done. Like he does this a lot. Where there, just, you just drop something in, and maybe I'll use it later. Yeah, or, yeah. He just yeah. he just creates threads, and he's like, eh, I'll leave that one forever. Like, Which I mean, the three of us here, like we're all writers. I don't know. I don't do that. <laughs> I don't know how you can just drop a thread and just let it dangle there. But Lynch does it all the time. It's yeah, kind of fun. It works though because yeah. Um, it, that things like that happen in dreams. I know I keep saying, "Oh, it's very dreamlike," but it is. Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, things like that happen in dreams. You'll get a phone call, and you won't know who it is, and you know you'll walk away from the phone, and it'll never be addressed again in yep. the dream. Yeah. So, so I think it, keeping with this, you know, this idea of whether or not what we're what we we can trust what we're seeing. Yeah. If what we're seeing is what we're actually seeing, or if it's a symbol of something else. Well, it's like Jerry's quote, yep. is this real or some strange and twisted dream, right? Like that's the, yeah. that's yeah. the thesis statement for this whole show, right? So it could very well be that this is just something that's been, that's been, yeah, dream logic into the episode. Yeah. It has no connection to reality. Yep. Very which possible. I accept. Yeah, that's I'm fine. fine with that. Yeah. yeah. So then we go to I think when it's I interesting stylistically, if nothing else. Oh yeah. yeah, no, absolutely, and it and it does, yeah, it's very David Lynch. It contributes to the to the um, the overall feeling of the episode. I mean, even if it has no narrative function. Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, something weird going on. That's always helpful. <laughs> um, so then we go to One Eye Jacks. Yes. And you have Emery. I I just love this scene because what the hell is going on? I don't know. He enjoys being tied up and having a vacuum cleaner run. Yeah, it's, and his toenails and his painted. toenails painted. Like he's just well, it's just, just it's just one eye jacks caters to your fantasy. Exactly, yeah, so and, and that's is... his, and it's and I, I love that that it's just like there's the fantasy, he goes with it, and mm-hmm. nobody really even seems to judge or anything like that. Well, it's, it, just... it, it's a nice thing that that I nobody in Twin Peaks, and I don't know Harvey, maybe this was I read this in one of your reviews or um, recaps on Tumblr, but nobody in Twin oh. Peaks is is shamed for their sexual appetites yeah um, right yeah that was that was something that i i brought up with regard to the, the treatment of uh girls and women in yeah. sex and but it, yeah it can be extended to um, the larger population right uh like when i mean this, this isn't about sex obviously but when denise appears yeah um she's treated very very well yeah, um, yeah. i know it's, it's 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 a very very low bar but for 1990, yeah. you, 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 don't, you don't see trans women uh, t- treated that well on shows today. No, exactly. Um, exactly. So, I mean, it's for, for being very retrograde in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. in a lot of other ways, um, Twin Peaks is very progressive. And it's, 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 I think that it's the... It's the product of having different writers on the staff you right. can sort of see who has a more conservative bent and who um, is, is maybe more progressive or um, if, if certain things are not issues to them. Yeah. Um, 
And there's an episode coming up, actually, um, that has four different writers on it, and it's sort of, you can, you can see how, um, how these various elements sort of don't fit together, how they're sort of discordant. Right. Uh, so I, I think there are a lot of different voices, but overall, Twin Peaks, the show, and the, and the town mm-hmm. are a pretty progressive place. Yeah. Um, about, about this scene is that um, we've seen Emery up until this point as, as being somebody who has some sort of authority. Yeah. Um, he, he's a low-level pimp for, um, for Ben. Yeah. And he's also, I guess, in charge of human resources at, at Ben's department store. Right. And now we see him in, in a position where he has willingly relinquished his power and I feel like it's sort of meant to make us see him as less of a man. Right. Um, because you have the elements that are bonded. Um, you have uh, this sort of like quasi-domestic drowning with a vacuum cleaner. Yeah. Um, and um, you have the, the feminization. His toenails are painted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, you put all these elements together, and I think that the intention is to make the the, the viewer kind of recoil from him to see him as um, as, as somehow um, constitutionally flawed. I mean, aside from the fact that he is prostituting teenage girls, which yeah. I would think is, is a bigger flaw than liking to have your toenails painted. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's 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 really kind of it's it's evidence of, of uh, sort of semi using uh, prudishness because these are all very common things that people like to do in a BDSM setting. There's yep. nothing really weird about any of this. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in, on television in 1990, I'm sure this shocked a lot of people. Yeah. Probably did. Exactly. <laughs> but it is it is an interesting scene just um, for that reason, just that it is, like you said, it's progressive. And there is no judgment, even like the girls that are interacting with him. They, I mean, arguably, it's their job. That's what they're getting paid to do. So they're going to do it. No, but, but it's, it's the interaction between Audrey and them. Yes. Because there's yes. there's no words. Everything's just kind of verb, nonverbal, especially yes. with the uh, the redheaded girl, I think, who's running the vacuum cleaner. The cowgirl. Yes. The cowgirl, yeah, yeah. yeah. I love her outfit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's great. And, and like, but the, everything there is nonverbal. Like, nobody's... Yeah. Nobody's talking about the elephant in the room, which is literally the guy who's tied up in the room. Yeah. It's the, it's the first girl that she meets actually tells her to watch out for him because all because to take the eyes oh, that's right. from her. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, and she doesn't want to give it to her. But yes. Audrey says, Oh no, it's okay and I guess that's enough to mollify her because she says <laughs> watch out for this guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, it's it's an odd I mean it's not an odd, it's kind of an odd scene just in that the fact that the centerpiece of it, which is Emery being tied up, really doesn't actually play that much of a role, except for the fact that it lets Audrey question yeah. him yeah. and get the information that she wants out of him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's like it's almost like that scene. He could, he didn't need all the other things going on, but they built that, and then the rest of the scene kind of flows around it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah, and then which and you've brought up before in previous episodes that that's something that Lynch tends to do is the point of action in. In a scene, is it? It wasn't Lynch, actually. It was the episode where it happened a lot in was yeah. uh, 
one of the other directors. Oh, okay. I can't remember which one. But yeah, we had talked about okay. that. How yeah, there's there's sometimes centerpieces that everything else rotates around. Right. And yeah. Yeah, this is kind of an example. I mean, it's probably just a common. Yeah, for sure. But, but but it's it's interesting here, and it does give you know Audrey does have her her moment now to get. Yeah. Finally, get some information, yeah. which is what she came out to when I jacked. Yeah, I thought the scene because I really criticized the writing for this because like Audrey kind of faded a lot in the last two episodes when she went to one I jacks and yeah. then she really didn't seem to have a game plan once she was there. Yeah. And this is finally clear as to what she was going to do. Yeah, and I, I thought it was it was you know as far as things go, it's not a bad game plan. I'm still the boss's daughter. Like you should listen to me, uh, and then. But once, I, I, yeah. I, no, well, she wants to find out about Laura and everything, and she does. Yeah, and, yeah. and I, I like that that here we have uh, direct parallels being made between Audrey and mm-hmm. Laura for the first time. Like, yep. Audrey says, I'm Audrey Horn, and I get what I want. And Emery says something later on that Laura also also oh, so always got what she wanted. wanted. Yeah. So, and there's a look that kind of crosses Audrey's face that... Yeah. She realizes that parallel has been, been made, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so... Anyway, Harvey, you've been trying to get into the conversation. Yeah, We've been hogging the mic, so go for it. Um, no, I don't really have a, a lot more to contribute. Aiden made a, good, a very good point about um, Audrey working so hard to get into one eye jack, but not really knowing what she was going to do once she got there. Right. Um, which makes sense, because it's another reminder that she might be 18, she might legally be an adult, but she's still a kid. Yeah. That's something that a teenager would do. They yeah. would concentrate on getting to the place where they have to go but then not think about what they were going to do once they got there yeah exactly um, and I, and she probably had some very unrealistic ideas about what investigation actually entails mm-hmm. because it's all been a romance for her up until this point she yeah. hasn't thought of the actual um the actual guess of what it is she has to do who she would be encountering what she would have to do and she did really get lucky that emory likes to be tied up because yes. there was no way she could take him on physically no way yeah um so yes we, we get to see audrey sort of flex her muscles if you will and she sort of um assumes a more assertive role which seems to come naturally to her in one respect but She's definitely disarmed by um, what Emery tells her because even though she already knows the information, the fact that everybody else knows mm-hmm. puts it in a, in a different frame of mind for her, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it means it's real. Yeah, yeah means, uh, exactly. She didn't imagine it. Yeah. There wasn't some horrible mistake. Um, you know, there, there wasn't a miscommunication. Yep. Her father does actually own this brothel where um, a girl who was murdered used to work. And um, it's implied that um, Laura had, had uh, a long-term relationship with Audrey's family because, of course, there's the picture of them at, mm-hmm. on the ski trip together. Yeah. Um, and you don't tend to travel with people you don't know very well. And right. she may have just been there to uh, help Sylvia with Johnny, but still, she played an important role in that family. Right. Well, and even, like, the, her dad working, like... Yeah. Leland yeah. being Ben's lawyer, yeah. you know, the families would would have been interacting, certainly, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so. No, it's true. Yeah. yeah. No, I, yeah. I, yeah. I think this is a good scene for Audrey and the plot, um, because it, it's important for her, mostly. It's yeah. mostly an Audrey scene, but, um, yeah, it does also, like, at this point, I mean, you're leaning towards Bob, obviously, as the, as the killer, um, 
but you don't know who that is, yeah. whether he's real or not or anything. So there's still a couple obvious candidates for the killer at this point, and one of them is still Ben Horn. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, exposing their relationship and his connection with Laura is also uh, useful at this point as well. But I wanted to, to bring this up because um, it was only in the, the end of the last episode where Audrey... Um, has that scene where she's praying to Agent Cooper and she talks about how she's in over her head. And then she comes to see Emery and she's all bluster and bravado. But but I don't think she's thought this through. And again, this is going to your point, Harvey, about how um, she's this kid who doesn't really know what she's going to do when she's got him in this position Mm -hmm. or locked into this situation. Because clearly revealing that she's there and revealing herself to Emery puts her in danger and we see that yeah. come to fruition at the like within the next 20 minutes of the episode because you know now that he knows yeah. that she's there there's she's in more danger than yeah. she was before so it's it's just like Aiden you were saying it's important for her character it is because right. it, it underscores how unprepared she is mm-hmm. for all of this if we didn't already know yeah. she was in danger if we didn't already know that she was unprepared that is just completely like bolded, italicized in flashing red letters. Like she's just totally out of her element, right? So yeah, that's true. Um, Do you want to move on then? Yeah, we can go it to is the a good next scene, but we can Bobby and Shelley. Bobby and Shelley grooving, grooving in yeah. their car. The, David Lynch loves this couple, and he loves them in cars. The first scene with them is in a car <laughs> and listening to fifties rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He really channels that. 50s homecoming couple. Well, they are a pretty couple. They are, I mean, and they're, they're so very gorgeous. attractive. That's yeah. So, and David Lynch likes pretty people. So. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this is a pretty simple one. I mean, it's really just setting up the the storyline of the uh, insurance money that they're they're going to keep Leo yeah. around. So they. So can we got we got rid of yeah. one insurance scam and we've brought in another one. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's so odd. But I mean, so there's, I mean, yeah, not much really happens. But there's a couple questions raised. Um, this one, some of them aren't important. Like mine is, where are they? They're they're in like this smoky black background behind them. It's probably just the woods or something like that. But it's like yeah. middle of nowhere. It's it's literally just the car is the whole setting. I just thought that was interesting. Um, but then also, uh, why didn't they interview Shelly so far in the yeah, hospital? Yeah, um, I was wondering about that too because they know that even, she was somebody tried to murder her, and she was at the scene of the fire. Which is, why wouldn't they have interviewed her? Why would her they yet? not interview her? Um, and even Cooper said in the last episode, we should really interview Shelley Johnson yeah. or something like that. It, maybe it was earlier in this episode. I don't remember. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's a major well, kind of gap. But Maybe that's something we didn't see. Maybe they said talk to interview her or, or, um, yeah. or Auntie. Yeah, it um, could be. They just didn't mention it. Or they were so distracted by Ronette waking up that yes. they didn't have time to think about something so mundane as... Somebody trying to kill Shelly? <laughs> <laughs> Poor Shelly, the bottom of the list, yeah. Which totally goes yeah. back to our previous point that nobody really cares about Shelly either. Like, it almost seems like she doesn't no. exist in the yeah. town. She's not a townie. Yeah. She's, like, an she's, outsider she's an almost, outsider, yeah. right? So yeah, She has no people. Well, she has no people. Everyone has to know that Leo's beating the shit out of her. Nobody does anything about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure. Yeah. She doesn't try to help her in any way. Nope. Yeah. So it's it's, yeah... One more female character that we can feel sorry for, definitely. Definitely. Um, but yeah, it just this scene serves little purpose other than to outline where Bobby and Shelley are going to be for the next few episodes, which is trying to scam Leo's insurance. Leo's insurance money. And... So bad. Yeah. So bad. All right. 
It's so, yeah. This is one of those plots that I think could have been executed better in the long mm-hmm. run. Because here it still seems kind of interesting. You're like, okay, they're going to keep Leo in the house? That seems so stupid. Yeah. And then it's just played it for is. laughs. Well, yeah, and it is stupid. <laughs> and then, But they, they play it for laughs. Like, it's kind of sad the way that yeah. the plotline gets Sorry? That's the worst. That's the worst? Yeah. I mean, okay. I'm not a fan of Leo, yeah. obviously, but once he is shot and has a traumatic brain injury and becomes disabled, yeah. it's like he's a different character. Yeah. You can't, you can't exact revenge on someone in that state. Like, if of he were, so. you know, when he was in his right mind and he was um, physically able to attack Bobby yeah. and Hank shot him, that was fine. That yeah. was great. I was yeah. all right with that. But after all these, all these, uh, and him, and he's been put in, you know, the succession of dehumanizing situations, it's not right. No, it's not. And, and it does go a long way to, I mean, we've touched on this. We may end up doing a separate episode about this topic entirely, but the way that disability is treated in Twin Peaks yeah. leaves well, a lot to be desired. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, mental health but, issues are, are for but sure. But... And it, it does merit further discussion. Yeah, because there's a lot of instances where, where this is is not addressed not... with the sensitivity that you would expect, well, even I mean, in 1990. But yeah, but yeah. So this is this is one of those one of those cases where it's just a blatant abuse of yeah. And of Lin- power. Lynch is really bad for that. Um, yeah. But yeah, the series as a whole takes it up and yeah. runs with it, unfortunately. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, jumping to the next scene, it's now nighttime. We get Cooper at the Great Northern and he's dictating to Diane about uh, the developments of the day. So, he reveals that Wyndham Earl has vanished. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't give any more information okay. about him, but just clearly yeah, intimating he's that upset there's. About it, basically, yeah, right? well, yeah, his tone of voice and yeah. everything indicates that. Um, he spends way more time ruminating on Audrey, yeah. which you think... Oh. I also learned that Audrey Horn is missing. Audrey's absence touches me in ways I could not predict. I find myself thinking not of clues or of evidence, but of the content of her smile. Because okay. I, I have... My notes are the exact opposite, so maybe I just stopped listening after you talked about Audrey. <laughs> but I, I have, like... He's far more troubled about Wyndham Earl than he is about missing Audrey. Uh, and I don't know why, but I mean, I think it was more just his facial expression was maybe. was much more terrified. Whereas Audrey, it's like, yeah, I liked that girl. Oh well. Like well, yeah, I, I, I guess I guess sort of dreamy. Yeah, it is. It's 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 in keeping with the rest of the relationship that we've seen between the two of them, which is very dreamy and mm-hmm. kind of not real. Um, he spends more words, is what I'm getting at. He yeah, talks yeah, more about sure, but he seems yeah, less but, concerned. And it's odd because maybe. I think this is like, I don't know, maybe they'd already started having issues with how the their storyline was going to go. Mm-hmm. But um, right. it seems like he's not as invested as he would be based on their previous interactions. Like if if someone who obviously thought that much of me and had tried to contact me many times uh, went missing all of a sudden, like I would be more concerned, especially when he seems genuinely attracted well, to it, her as and well. And it does, it is interesting that he does, he's not... not- so concerned about like the fact that she's gone or the fact that she's contacted him but he's thinking about the content of her smile like it's not yeah it's 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 a romantic thing it's not really a, a yeah he's not speaking as a law enforcement no professional. no yeah exactly so it's yeah yeah but anyway 
Yeah, okay. This is not the important part of the scene, because the important part happens when Major Briggs knocks on the door and comes in bearing, um, I don't know, chart paper? What are these? They're like... Space garbage. Space garbage. Space garbage, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's space garbage. And uh, we get a little bit of a hint about what Major Briggs does. And it's the first time that extra... Well, no. Well, extraterrestrial information is brought in. So he talks about how he, he works up on the mountain and he's listening to and deep space deep space radio, radio waves yeah. and um occasionally they're looking for transmissions they get all this information and usually it's like Gibberish. you said space garbage it doesn't make space any sense garbage. yeah which is great i love that fun to say yeah <laughs> space garbage sums it up yeah <laughs> But on the night that Cooper was shot, there were some interesting messages that came through. Yeah. Um, so the first, the first thing that, that Major Briggs uh, reveals was that um, the owls are not what they seem, mm-hmm. which is, I think that is the first time that we've heard that phrase. No. Well, the giant, yeah, the giant says it, you're right, yeah. but it is revealed here. So now it's the first time that Cooper yeah, has that information it, yeah. Yeah. outside of that that dream or that vision that he had. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of reacts to that because up until this point, he's, uh, yeah, his ring yeah. has been missing and he, he admits that that is strange, mm-hmm. but he hasn't really, maybe he's having trouble buying yeah. into this as a vision or a, as a real as thing a real that happened. Thing, yeah. So the fact that, that major Briggs has this, this same message that he received from the giant major Briggs is now bringing him is and also, the, Major Briggs' message also says Cooper three times. Yes. yes. That's also a little odd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, so the fact that Cooper's name has come up, and and it's revealed that yeah. this this information was not coming from outer space, but was coming from the woods. I think Does that it was... say that in this episode? Is that what, isn't that what he says? I don't know. I don't, I don't think I don't so. Okay. I think you find that out later, later on, on, maybe, that some of the messages they receive are not being okay. transmitted from... Okay. But yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, and this is one of the log lady mentions is deep space and yes. outer space, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it's, again, it's, I think the way Lynch wrote that intro is to kind of say, like, maybe it's not just what's outside, it's also what's what's inside. And I think that's the vision perhaps being um, something that's internal to Cooper, mm-hmm. but then also external and real to him uh, as well. yes, yeah. Um, is is uh is important Good and catch. he's he's kind of coming to that realization himself right. well um, yeah he even says yeah. something like oh my god or something like that like once he realizes yeah. that his that this is there's a connection here yeah did you want to add anything harvey um no i was just thinking about um during the initial vision um dale asked um the giant where he's from and the giant says something like, um, the question you should be asking is, where have you gone? Yes. Um, and I was, I was thinking just in a general way how that relates to the idea of inner versus outer space. Right. Um, how it could be that um, what we're obviously meant to think is that Dale travels to some other realm, whether it's extraterrestrial or extra-dimensional. Yeah. Um, but it could be that Dale just went further into his own mind. Right. I mean, obviously, it's, it's ambiguous, but yeah. um, the, the, it sort of um, it, it sort of creates the idea that um, all of these things, even though they are independent of him, exist within Dale. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, obviously, I don't I don't 
have an explanation for this or um, or an idea of how they reconciled it with their larger cosmology. I just think it's interesting. Yeah, no, definitely. And especially as it relates to the Log Lady intro, because she does say that it's a relation between, between internal and external, yeah. inner space, outer space. So, yeah, uh, yeah no, for sure. Um, it does raise a lot of questions and... Yeah, I... Yeah, I love, and this is a part of Twin Peaks that I love is is those questions that you don't a you don't answer, b you don't really want answered because yeah. then it would kind of take yeah. away all the joy and the mystery of of not knowing. But it keeps expanding, yeah, and and that was the yeah. that's the really fun part that keeps coming up in the future is yes this this whole uh, mystical part is not not quite done with even after yeah yeah, yeah even no after we're just getting hours. started yes, yeah that's true. The um, thing that I enjoy is that um, it, it doesn't seem like there. It, it's about solving a mystery or, or, or offering an ultimate explanation for everything, but um, just about showing you the richness of this world that they've created yeah. and all the things that are in it. Yeah. And the fact that all of this stuff, because of, there's like a trust almost at this point. For those of us who have stuck along the, to this point, we kind yeah. of just buy into it at this point. We just yeah. we we're just like, oh yeah, okay, yeah. totally. There's extraterrestrial space garbage that is going to play a role in solving Laura's murder. Yeah, I I'm with you, right? Yeah, sure. So, Why not? Which is which is really cool because a lot of shows like I'm thinking of, well, like the X Files we've talked about on this episode yeah. already. Um, which their mythos got very convoluted. Wow. Lost yeah. is yeah. another one that that. Well, I we, think we broke watched. the character's trust, but it's common, yeah, commonly yeah, yeah. referenced as one that... Well, that, more just the ending never concluded things. Well, yeah, but even but, within yeah. the show, it went yeah. kind of all over the place, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, so a lot of shows... And, and we have no idea. Maybe maybe if Twin Peaks had continued for another three or four seasons, and it, it would have done the same thing, and it would have broken our trust again, but... we got to find out. Only six more months or so. <laughs> Well, when the new yes, when the new ser- or the new uh, season airs, we'll find out. But I have faith it won't be. Well, you know, I think bad. yeah, it's and it's gonna be Lynch, so it'll yeah. be weird, and we'll never yeah. there'll be no answers. That's for sure. Yeah. Unfortunately. I Unfortunately, I think it's great. I I think that um, the past twenty five years has taught uh, both television creators and television viewers a lot about storytelling, about television in yes. general. Yeah. So. Um, I, I think it would be impossible to not learn from the mistakes of the past. So we're not going to see um, a, a continuation of the 1990s right. Twin Peaks. We're going to see Twin Peaks in 2017 right. with everything that that implies. So we're not, we're, you mean we're not going to get a continuation of, of uh, Ben Horn and the Antebellum South? Come oh, on. <laughs> you can dream all you want, ladies. Sorry. It's probably not going to happen. Anyway, um, I, I don't think that I don't think they would even try to get away with that. No, no I don't no, think yeah. they would either. <laughs> no, it'll I, it'll I be. Think there are some things that should just stay in the 1990s, yeah. or better yet, in the 1890s, that yeah. should have been brought into the 20th century. Yes, that was ridiculous. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll just leave that one on. Um, so we've got, we've got two more scenes left, and yes. they're pretty intense scenes. Well, one yeah. is. Okay, one, can I, can I just call it the scene, what it should be called? Yeah, sure, go Why, ahead. why the fuck, why the fucking fuck would this scene <laughs> exist? And that is, of course, uh, James singing to his two love interests and making googly eyes with both of them. Oh, it was, and that, it's just so weird. Everybody, 
I think this is when, if you were still on watching the show when you were on the fence and then this scene came on, you're like, yeah, fuck it, I'm, n- I'm never watching the show again. Like, it would really <laughs> kill me. Screw you, James. Yeah. I just, I mean, it's just so bad. <laughs> like, well, there's all- no, it's, it's like, apropos of nothing. There's just yeah. no reason for them to be there aside from, like, to make googly eyes and to reinforce this love triangle that they have. Well, it's not even reinforcing it. It's well, like... <laughs> it's like a parody of a love triangle. I guess, yeah. And it's so overwrought. And then like, Donna's reaction. Think, Sorry, go a ahead. Lot of the sort of nonsensical stuff uh, in Twin Peaks, especially as it relates to the younger characters, I think it's meant to be a deconstruction. I'm, I'm getting this from another source. I read this someplace else, but I'm just thinking I have, I've never had an original thought. Um, <laughs> it's a deconstruction of tropes from 1950s and 60s. Yeah. This is a thing that would happen. Like yeah. Bobby and Shelly in the car all the time. That's, that's yeah. a standard motif. Yeah. Um, and this is something that would happen in, in one of those movies. And they did sort of like, get, it was usually on a beach, gather on a bonfire mm-hmm. at the beach and sing. Yeah. And there was a subtext to the, to the performance. Um, and that's what we see here. But of course, because it's Twin Peaks, it doesn't stop there. And it's not just about this. It's about creating where um, the viewer's uh, um, expectation is subverted because two things happen that are very important to the narrative mm-hmm. and sort of sort of bring us back to what the show is actually about, which is mystery. Mm-hmm. Harold gets, um, Johnny gets a call from Harold, and then Maddie's involved. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. And this this part, I, I actually read this myself um, on one of the Twin Peaks groups on Facebook that I belong to, and if I find the comments... I will post the comment uh, in our links as well because I want to give credit for this idea. But electricity playing a, an important role in this show mm-hmm. and in the relationship between the the spirits of Twin Peaks or the, the lodge spirits or whatever we're calling them and the people who see them in the real yeah. world, um, that the fact that Maddie was previous to seeing Bob in the scene was singing so close to the microphone mm-hmm. that maybe the, she was charged in some way by the electricity, oh. by the music, by whatever was happening. And that's what allowed Bob to manifest and present himself to her, um, which I thought was interesting. It was an interpretation that I had never considered. But mm-hmm. um, previous to that, I just thought, well, Maddie's alone. She's going to see Bob. She, it's been hinted that she was going to be seeing you know, she was having well, she visions, visions already, yeah. so um, it's not like it's a massive stretch. But, but yeah, so th- that in that yeah. sense maybe gave some um, no, true. meaning I mean, or purpose to why they were singing. But um, yeah, I, yeah, I'd buy it. I mean, that definitely that that it's not a theme. That that uh, incidents occurs again That's and again really with the yeah. Um, I I'd like to see what what else this person has to say about that because. Yeah. Um, I, I can't think of any other um, examples of this happening, but I would like to read what they have to say about it. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm, I'm going to have to go back and find that. It was just yeah. within the last couple of days, so I'll find it and screen cap uh, it and <laughs> send it around. My, my theory is that um, in kind of enacting this love triangle with James and Donna, James, of course, sees Maddie as being... Um, if not a stand-in for Laura, herself a senator to her, mm-hmm. a part of Laura that remains in in this world. Yeah. So um, we know that um, that Bob and other Black Lodge spirits are, are, are attracted to 
um, to physical objects that have been handled by the people that yes. they possess or are interested in. Yeah. So maybe it's the fact that James is associating Maddie so closely with Laura that draws him out because she's already seen him. Um, no, she didn't see him. She saw things sort of related to him. But yes. Bob has been seen in the Palmer home. Yeah. yeah. But she sees him in Donna's house. Yes, yeah. that's right. He's not, supposed, he's not supposed to be there. Right, exactly. Uh, she has no connection to that place, but she does have a connection um, somewhat tenuously to James. Yeah. Um, and Laura was probably actively trying to keep Bob away from James, but um, again, in in, in, in maybe for a moment forgetting that Maddie was Ma Maddie and thinking that she was Laura, that was allowed. That that, that was what allowed Bob to sort of be to be invoked. Yeah, I I buy that too. That makes total sense as well. And it fits in with what we've been taught about Maddie throughout the last few episodes that she's been in is that she is more or less a stand-in for Laura. Mm -hmm. um, so, of course, Bob is going to focus on her and come at her. And it it is a truly terrifying way. Like, like Bob himself, and I know, Harvey, you, you have brought this up before in your Tumblr post, that Frank Silva was an absolute doll of a man. Like, he was not yeah. a scary yeah. man at all. Very nice man. And yeah. he's, he's not even scary looking. No, not I mean, really. Yeah. But it's His the way... Sorry, go ahead. Um, his performance is excellent, and yeah. the way that he's shot and the way that this um, this scene works, it, it really is chilling. Yeah. Um, I'm not able to disconnect um, Bob, the character, from Frank Silva, the actor. Right. Um, so I, 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 don't, I probably don't get the full impact. I think the first time I saw this when I was 13, it probably made me shit myself. Yeah. But... <laughs> I mean, I, I can't I, I can't go back to that point in time, but I mean, even just looking at it academically, it is very, it, it's viscerally frightening because yeah. it's almost like he's, un, he's an unstoppable force. He's not, yeah. he's not so much a man. He's something, um, something wholly destructive that may have to may have some relation with the natural world, but it has no relationship to um, to what we think of as, as human civilization. Yeah. Well, and, and like uh, the way that the, the the shot is filmed really underscores that because he he comes out like there's the fourth wall exists. It extends a little bit into the frame and, and that table should have been the place where he stopped. But he climbs he over going, the table yeah. and keeps coming right into at the, the camera. camera yeah. So it's yeah. so unsettling because no character does that. Like even yeah. even other characters who look at the camera are still a respected respectable distance from the camera but he just keeps coming at you and that's and then yeah. the music as well that swells and it's it's not even music it's just like a, I think yeah. a tone or something yeah, yeah. but it it's yeah. frightening and then of course you get Cheryl Lee's scream which is Always intense great. so I mean the yeah. whole the whole thing kind of wraps up in this terrifying moment that yeah. it's less about Bob himself and more about uh, the situation I think that Bob is in and what yeah. he represents than than the character himself. So, yeah. But it is it is a very intense scene. Very coming after a very, yeah, like you know, reminiscent of Bye Bye Birdie or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Or <laughs> yeah. A Beach Boys movie or something. Yeah. 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 So. A Beach Boys movie. I don't know. Do they do movies? I don't think so. Didn't they do movies? 
Elvis movies. did movies. Yeah, Elvis did movies. That's yeah. what I'm thinking of. <laughs> Whatever. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> and then, uh, did the Harold Smith thing come in? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Harvey mentioned that. Oh, he did, okay. Yeah, that okay. Um, he calls Donna. Yeah, he calls Donna. Donna goes, that's right. That's yeah, because Donna has her freak out. The... She, she gets upset because she's, I have a note here where she's so possessive already after only a week with James. She's, I guess that's a very high school emotion that you would have. You know, you'd get well, pretty upset and, about like, it. Like the but. whole thing with her and the sunglasses too. Like yeah. she's, she's, again, her character has changed in season two as well. And she's yeah. a bit more possessive, a bit more, a bit more Laura. Yeah. Like she's channeling well, a little more. Maddie also looks just like Laura. So yes. That's gotta be in my thought. Well, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so. But. Uh, yeah. No. They're great though. So then the last scene. Yeah. What yeah. is it? I didn't write it down. Oh, you didn't. <laughs> we have uh, um, Cooper has has a dream, or another vision of Bob. Um, well, there's a, a couple of things, a couple of different. Oh yeah, the giant shows up first, see. right? Well. Because uh, I remember right the giant waving his hand in front of Cooper again. And he does that every time he appears uh, when Cooper's sleeping. But then, does he talk to him again? I don't remember. No. No? I don't okay. think so. Okay. No, Cooper yeah. Cooper is having a dream about Bob. And, or he has a vision of Bob and an owl. Oh, yeah. Um, is, come, like, is superimposed, superimposed on his on face. face. So yeah. he, he sees him as an owl. Uh, he sees Sarah on the stairs. He sees Bob walking in slow motion mm-hmm. and kind of laughing to himself. Um, so it's just like an ominous series of, of images about Bob, really, that Cooper has. And then the phone rings and wakes him up, and it's Audrey calling him from One-Eyed Jack. Yeah. So this is the first contact. Cooper still hasn't found the note where Audrey says where she's gone. Yeah. She assumes that he knows and that he just doesn't hasn't come for her yet. Well, she tells him that she saw him on the... Yeah, in his, in his tux, tux, and yeah. he looked like a movie star... And I, I often wonder, like, why didn't she just tell him, like, I'm at One-Eyed Jack, yeah. why aren't you here? Like, yeah. Convenient yeah. plot device. No, it is a convenient plot device. That's fine. But it's, it's, and I guess, like, you know, you could explain it away as she's just not thinking straight, but well, She was thinking I don't pretty know. straight when she had Emery wrapped up. I like, know. And that's the thing. Like, yeah. she, obviously, she's out of her, her lingerie costume mm-hmm. that she's been in. She's in her travel clothes again. So clearly she's either on her way out or she wants to leave. She's she's changed. She's upset visibly. Like she's like emotional yeah. talking to him on the phone. And then obviously like their their conversation gets cut off. Blackie uh, hangs, hangs up, up the phone. phone. And this is where it comes into play. Like after telling Emery who she was and revealing that she's at One-Eyed Jacks, that puts her in, in more danger because now they're, they, they've decided they're going to use her as leverage. Um, which we find out in in the next couple of episodes. So, um, so her, her communication is cut off to Cooper, to the outside world. And, um, and now, yeah, like the end shot is of her crying face because she's, yeah, way in over her head at this point. Um, but yeah, I, I guess, yeah, my, my main issue with this is that, well, a, that she doesn't tell Cooper where she is. But yeah. he, asks, that he, asks. he does, but he also, like, and again, maybe, Harvey, you brought this up in, in your um, recap, that he goes to, like, it just automatically assumes that she's playing some kind of game. Yeah, which is weird. Yeah, because, um, yeah, like, she's obviously missing, and this is a serious investigation, like, people are dying. Like, why would he just assume she's playing a game, right? So. Well, um, you can sort of... I don't know, if, if you really want to do the heavy lifting, you can sort of see it as him um, thinking about um, 
the way he was talking about her earlier and, and uh, transferring some of his, his, I guess, his skills that he had in an unprofessional manner onto yep. her. Mm -hmm. um, that's one way to look at it. Um, another way to look at it is that she's just woken him up and he doesn't know where he is or right. what's happening. Right. Um, and then finally, it could just be bad writing. Yeah. Fair enough. But it's, it's, <laughs> but it's, it's really, it's, it's glaring. <laughs> yeah. Either one of them brings up her actual location after Dale asks where she is. Yeah. I mean, then obviously, Blackie hangs up the phone, so she can't tell him. Right. But, you know, she should have tried to blow it up. I mean, when I jack. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Or even or even just the fact, the like, he's, he's you know, an intuitive guy. He would figure out yeah. when she says, I saw you in my t in your tux. Yeah. He'd be like, where have I been wearing a tux, tux. recently? Like, yeah. well, there's only two places at the Great Northern and one eye jack. Yeah. So, and she wasn't at the Great Northern, probably. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it there are a couple plot holes here, but... Well, like, yeah, I just, yeah, I'm kind of on the bad writing bandwagon because it, it, she doesn't even, like, he doesn't even jump right to her note. Like, if... If the point is to uh, show that she's in peril, Cooper doesn't need to be involved in that because right. he can find the note anytime. They can have any sort of convenient excuse for him to finally find the note yeah. and understand that she went to one on Jack's. Right. And then she, he can go from there. Audrey being in trouble doesn't need to happen through a, a phone call that right. gets cut off, right? So this yeah. whole interaction does not need to happen. Yeah, he could just true. literally wake yeah. up and realize... Oh yeah, I forgot something. Reaches under the bed and grabs the note, right. and then he and then it cuts to Audrey mm -hmm. getting in shit or something mm -hmm. like that, right? Like there's there's other ways they could have done it, and yeah, this it doesn't work. But I mean, it's it's yeah, but it's okay. I mean, it does move the plot on. The next episode is uh, you start down that path a yeah. bit more, a bit strongly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. So that's that's the last. That's shot. the last that's shot. The last that's shot. the end of the episode. Okay. So we get. Uh... A lot of things set up. We've met a lot of new characters. A lot mm -hmm. of new plot points have started. And, yeah, things are just going to keep picking up from here until about the midpoint of season two. Yeah, yeah. Where things drop off a cliff a bit. Yeah. But but we've got a few yeah. episodes left before that. So yeah. yeah. Any final thoughts, Harvey? Or um, Well, again, I thought it was a very strong episode in terms of um, its place in the narrative. Mm -hmm. Uh we checked in with everybody. Yeah. We saw how everybody's storyline is progressing. Yeah. Um, we learned some important things. Um, so I, in, in general, I, I liked it. And of course, the next episode is the one where Albert tells Harry that he loves him. That's <laughs> right. That is right. It's a very so, important episode. Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is. For Albert's character and for humanity, yeah. I would argue. Yeah. <laughs> I'd back that up. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah, it's a great, it's a good episode. So uh, yeah. thank you for joining us, Harvey. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Anytime you want to come back on, we're we're yeah. more than willing to. Oh, uh, well, I'm like a vampire. You invite me in once and I'm going to be asked to do all the <laughs> Yes, all excellent. Right. That works out. <laughs> great cool. on. Okay. All right, thank you, son. All right.